The no-code movement is taking the tech world by storm right now, with the moniker being a nod to tools and services that allow you to create your own software with little to no coding needed, something that has been a dream for technologists and consumers for decades. Well, it's starting to become a reality. You want to design your own website or mobile app without any coding experience? You can now easily do that. You want to control your lights when you walk in the door or get a notification on your phone when someone enters your house or when the forecast calls for rain that day. All of these things would have required an an expertise in programming years ago. And Vlad's company, Webflow, is the poster child of this new movement. Today, with tools like Webflow, Weebly, Wix, Thunkable, Ift, Omni, and others, the opportunity to build simple and complex software for yourself or your company is getting simpler and more powerful with each passing year. Vlad Magdalene, co-founder and CEO of Webflow, sits down and we chat about his insane story of failure, followed by failure, followed by failure, all on the same company and idea spanning 15 years before getting it right with Webflow's current incarnation which just raised $75 million from investors a few months ago and was one of the largest Series A's of the last few years. We talk about the debt he went into financially and personally, including with the most important of co-founders, his spouse. We talk about what he thinks about today as, as a leader that he rarely ever gets a chance to talk about. And we talk about the R word, religion. It's a behemoth of a conversation, and it is one of my favorites to date. I think you're going to enjoy this very different kind of conversation and founder story. And a quick shout out to Sharath and KP, two no-code experts that have turned me on to these phenomenal tools that I'm now using in projects on a daily basis. If you dig below the line, we'd love a review. It's how podcast platforms rank and suggest podcasts. It's also how I consume podcasts. I always check out the reviews. So every review matters and we appreciate every single one. If you're one of the folks that have already left a review, especially all the five-star reviews we've gotten, know that we appreciate and read every single one. So thank you for taking the, the five to 10 seconds to do that. You actually now can just smash five stars. You don't even have to uh, to leave the text review on podcasts, most podcast apps anymore. So it really does take five seconds. So I appreciate that. Below the Line is brought to you by a kick-ass sponsor, Playcast Media. Do you want the easiest way to set up a professional premium podcast from your home? Go to playcastmedia.com and get their premium podcast in a box delivered right to your door. Everything you need for a premium podcast, all the equipment, info that guides you on setting up. I use Playcast Media's equipment. It is awesome. Everything you need to get started all in a box. One click, buy, boom, it's on your door. Having a professional sound studio in your home or office has never been easier or more straightforward than with Playcast Media. Go check them out, playcastmedia.com. That's playcastmedia.com. And without further delay, let's get into it with Vlad Magdalene. This is Below the Line. Vlad. Vlad, cheers. Cheers, James. We are drinking some liquid death mountain water. Murder your thirst. Feels great to have your thirst murder. It's a, it's a new thing for me. This has been on the podcast once, uh, maybe twice before, and, and it is 
the most outrageous branded drink ever. I agree. And it's quite thirst quenching or thirst murdering. So I'm glad I'm glad to, um, to share one with you. Well, I guess we're sharing two just yeah. for listeners at home. We're not sharing <laughs> one. That'd be a little too intimate, but great to have you on the podcast this morning. It's amazing to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. I, I can't wait to dive into a, just a whole host of, of topics based on the things that you share openly on online, on Twitter. And I'm really excited, but I did want to start off the, the podcast talking about something a little orthogonal to startups. You, you mentioned mm-hmm. that you fast in the mornings. Yep. And um, I'm guessing it's intermittent fasting. Yep. What is, do you have a morning routine, a set morning routine that you try to? Um, I used to have a whole range of different routines. Right now it's super basic. So I, I wake up really early. I usually wake up at 4.45, you know, take a shower, drive to work, and I focus on my most important task of the day. So that's when usually nobody's in the office, put on my headphones, set a timer, set a timer for 60 seconds, uh, 60 minutes, sorry, and just get in the zone and work on that most important thing. It's always different. Um, it's just whatever is top of mind, whether it's like, you know, really important job description or a new strategy doc or whatever. That's basically uh, what my morning is these days. Before I tried to do workouts and meditation, and that was just too much to try to squeeze in and just wasn't getting the right but but always felt behind when i would miss days or something like that so right now it's really basic get up get prepared drive work on the most important thing then get into the day how do have you always been a early riser oh absolutely not it's it just became a necessity once uh, we moved from mountain view to the city and if you miss the the early morning window for traffic, you're essentially adding another 30, 45 minutes or an hour to your day. Whereas when I, you know, leave when I do now, it's a guaranteed 30 minute drive. So that is probably the the most important life hack for me in, in just getting more time in the day. So it kind of became a necessity. And, you know, over the last four years, just, even without setting an alarm, I'll, I'll be up at 445. Every day of Every the week? Day. Well, not every day of the week. Saturdays are are definitely a wake up when my kids wake up and kind of enjoy the time with them. Uh, yeah. It's a lot more flexible. Right. Yeah. Well, tell me a little more detail. It, I'm always fascinated with with routines, especially mm-hmm. for someone like you that has 150 plus employees and mm-hmm. and a and a company where there are many, I imagine, many important tasks. Yeah. Every day. Tell me a little more about kind of the evolution towards one important task for for a day yeah it actually came from a combination of things i think i think multiple uh, there's a a book called the great ceo within uh, that advocates or something like this but honestly the the main inspiration came from a book called essentialism of uh and and the main idea there is to to really focus your time on the essential few things rather than the you know the sea of uh, urgent tasks, etc. And for me, it was just a, I saw how much, uh, this is something I worked with my coach on for a long time. Like I saw how much learning to say no to a lot of things that seem very promising. And, you know, they could span the gamut of opportunistic meetings with investors or potential clients, or just, you know, people that reach out to you for advice or there's just the whole podcast. Rip. Exactly. <laughs> Appreciate um, you saying yes to this. I mean, yeah, just uh, focusing on things that really give me energy and that that bring a lot of value to the impact that I want to have in the world and saying no to a lot more things that are 
like have impact, but steal a lot of energy and, you know, kind of make me dread wanting to work on them, et cetera. And this early morning focus on working on the most important thing is just something that I've found. Uh, I've always struggled with procrastination. And I found that this is the the most ideal thing for me, where if I knock out that one really important thing once a day, that's five times a week that I'm working on things that are hypercritical and in a regular flow of things, I'll probably avoid uh, or try mm-hmm. to make them like at the end of the day when I'm like losing a bunch of energy or whatever. So that's just something over the last year has uh, has really solidified and kept working for me. And it's it's really easy to maintain, um, you know, because the, the ritual is during a time that there are no other distractions. Mm-hmm. Um, the only distraction is kind of my own my own mind or where it can mm-hmm. go. But I've also developed some some tiny little, um, you know, this is something that my coach helped me a lot with, with addressing those kind of mental gaps when you try to fall into the space of working on the most important task and just, just you know, acknowledging it, naming it, kind of letting myself, give it, giving myself permission to feel those, uh, you know, those like thoughts of like, I don't want to work on this or whatever. And, and just those little, little rituals helped get those, uh, get those tasks done every day. And, and I also like the reason it's just one is because when I try to do more, when I try to do two hours every morning, it just started to fall apart. So right. I, I had to know my own limitations and, and just say, you know, this is, this is an hour, this is an hour that's blocked. Uh, nothing gets scheduled over this. It's not even during working hours at most. Yeah, what time working. is it? What time do you arrive? Um, this is like six to seven most days. I imagine you cherish that. You love. I love that time. Love that time. I mean, there are times where I'm like, you know, I have to get into the mental space of loving that time. Everything has to be just right. Like I, I get into the office. I'm the first one to use a coffee machine. Uh, I have to have that a specific timer that I got on Amazon that just sort of like tells my brain how much time is left. It's a little Pomodoro technique-ish, but it's like a full hour. Um, is it a physical timer? It's a physical timer. Yeah. yeah and it not, actually goes on a desktop. Uh, no, no. Timers, yeah. it's just like a physical timer and that has like, it just beeps after it's done Yeah, that, you know, that's usually that beep is sometimes I'm just like in the flow of things where I just, all right, I need another half an hour and I kind of keep working on something. But sometimes it's, it's this like dopamine hit of like icon. It's, it's like after workout, right. like I'm done or I have permission now to go get another cup of coffee or get some water or go for a walk or whatever. Right. That's such a powerful, imagine such a powerful psychological hack mm-hmm. just to, by 7 a.m., mm-hmm. by 8 a.m., by 9 a.m., when everyone's mm-hmm. getting to the office, you already feel like, okay, at least I got yeah. that done. Right, right. And you feel like you're starting the day ahead. Yeah. I There's still a lot of things I feel behind on, but I'm already planning for like, okay, it, worst case scenario, I'll plan this really important thing for the next morning. For tomorrow morning. Um, and I still get through a ton of urgent and important things throughout the day, um, you know, whether it's meetings or other other priorities. But like, it, it does feel great to be done with one thing that in in my past life, uh, you know, I would like keep snoozing and sort of have in the back of my mind and always thinking I'm behind on a ton of things. Um, so it's it's definitely a it helps it helps have like a more calm approach to life, at least for me. It's right. Important. Yeah, the uh, I think it's. To- I know Max Lepchin always uh, cycles in the morning and says he just no matter what happens at work, he knows mm-hmm. that he at least got that done mm-hmm. in the morning, and and it also is. Yeah, ever since high school, I've always written down my 
top two or three things on mm-hmm. my hand, and sometimes it's just one or two. But it being on my hand, I'm thankful being out in San Francisco. That's not the street. Yeah, right. Still write it on. Yeah, your hand? I oh, do. That's awesome. Today's uh, most important thing is really this episode. Oh so, wow! I'm so honored. I didn't need to write it down because nice. it's already on the the books. But if it's something like for the book being able to write down, okay, finish this chapter mm-hmm. or for angel investing and kind of right. make a decision by, mm-hmm. uh, you know, by the end of the day on this company, it's, mm-hmm. it is, I cannot go to bed until I finish that right. thing. And so just having that, like that, that physical time or having that physical representation is just so much more powerful. And yeah. I've tried every to-do list app. Mm-hmm. I've tried every productivity app, but having that physical representation and mm-hmm. to your point, having that, and I remember reading this uh, in a book, the, the most important thing mm-hmm. uh, was the title of the book. And it's more or less essentialism, just have one thing yep. a day that mm-hmm. you say, okay, this is the most important. And it's a, um, my hand won't, I mean, it's not <laughs> real estate to add. <laughs> you can write smaller. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it has to be one or two, maybe three important things. Yeah. But I like that yeah. that addition of doing it right in the morning mm-hmm. and, and trying to knock it out. Out of curiosity, what was your approach to productivity and, and kind of these boundaries if you had them? What was your, what was your 10 years ago? So if for listeners, Vlad has started multiple startups, but you know, in 10 years ago, what was your approach to one of your first startups? Did you have a morning routine? Honestly, I did not. Like it was a uh, starting all the way back from high school. I was sort of a lifelong procrastinator. You know, I would always, and I always did great, right? That was the problem. You know, in high school, I was salutatory and I would write my essays at lunchtime and hand them in, right. you know, 30 minutes later or whatever. I would pull a ton of all-nighters like college was a lot like that i went to a combination of computer science then dropped out went to art school completely different you know skill sets but i had similar approaches to like always work at the last minute on you know the most important things and they were always great so like the my brain kind of associated that with like well i'm gonna do fine anyway but it like in terms of my mental state throughout each day it was always anxiety and you know like here's ways that i'm letting clients down and i did one of the things that i did kind of on the side is i ran an agency to uh, build websites for clients so that's like a lot of different projects in addition to a day job that i'm always mm-hmm. like kind of feeling behind on and i would have like you know after i got married this would have been about 10 years ago i was working at uh at intuit full-time but doing a lot of these side projects where because of the lack of habit like good habits and good productivity practices i would get behind on a lot of things then just you know work through the night multiple nights and then get sick and sort of like cycle out of these uh you know get these things done and they they were um you know for the most part good and acceptable and you know I'd get paid etc but it was just not a good kind of life to live especially it was hard on my wife because you just see me you know go into these like work zones and then uh, for many days just be kind of grumpy because I was getting sick or whatever not very sustainable at all. I think it only started and and starting Webflow seven years ago didn't really help with that because it was like a hundred percent of like waking time minus a few hours on Sundays. Uh, and I wouldn't recommend this to anybody. Um, it was just the necessity at the time because we didn't have any money, didn't have any funding, ran out of like savings. It, you just had to, we had to work uh, day and night to get this thing to ship. That was. I guess there was no room for procrastination then. You were just like always working. Mm-hmm. Um, and and working with my brother and my co-founder at the time, like we found ways to like figure out what was most important. 
But only then did it start to kind of develop into, all right, as as the company started to grow, like, and as the list of things to the list of important and urgent things to do kept getting out of hand, like, just kept growing larger and larger. And I think I spent a couple of years of in the same kind of like procrastination purgatory, maybe three or four years into Webflow when the team was maybe, you know, going from like 20 to 40 to 50 of constantly, you know, like falling through on commitments, not doing the most important things like procrastinating, et cetera. It was only um, a, few, a few years ago where I just realized that that was not going to scale. Like uh, it also coincided with a lot of other realizations in my life uh, around, you know, really focusing on on the essential things that are important, um, my family and relationships and those things being a lot more important than sort of like performance of the startup, et cetera, like this constant comparison to everybody else. And I think around the same time, I started focusing on intentionally trying to figure out what will actually be a lot more sustainable in my life. What's a lot behind. knowing that the company and and like my responsibilities are only going to keep growing and the, the type of work is only going to get harder. What year about what year was this that you started to kind of reflect on all of this? This um, very act very actively would have been 2017. Um, so it's it's also the same year that I transitioned from mostly coding to mostly managing people and like leadership. Uh, and that's when I was completely out of my element and completely, you know, felt unprepared for, I, I felt that I was a pretty strong engineer. And, you know, that was kind of my comfort zone. Mm. Even with the sort of uh, bad productivity practices, it was something that I could be like really, really effective in. When it came to leadership, it was just like learning from scratch, right? Mm. It was it was absolutely uh, like imposter syndrome 101, right? You right. just com- felt completely unprepared or not the right person to be doing this. Like uh, it's sort of not even lucked into sort of happened into that role. And I can't believe other people are like listening to what I have to say right? Uh, and are joining this company, uh, you know, with me at the helm or whatever. So that was sort of a, a like the first intentional step into, okay, I need help. I need a coach. I need to. Did anything happen externally or internally that catalyzed that? Reflection? I think internally the realization, like, Actually, there there was one, it was a combination of a lot of things, but there was one specific discussion I had with another engineer that was on the team that had the courage to say like, hey, what you're doing by maintaining control of like a specific part of the code base is actually hurting our team. There are more important things we need you for than like approving you know, code reviews and things like that. Uh, and that was kind of a shock to my system. That was a a realization that I'm actually like a barrier rather than a you know, because I, I wrote the entire uh, front end part of Webflow, like the majority of the app, and kind of legitimately thought that, uh, you know, since I understand it the most, I'm like, I can be the helpful. fastest way to move. Fastest way to move. I can be the most helpful. Like, it's it's hard for other people to get that kind of context. You know, after me working on this thing for five years, uh, how can anybody come on board that that quickly? But it was just robbing autonomy and ownership from from other team members, and right. having that realization, it, al- along with other things, was uh, just knowing that I had to make a choice of well, if I'm going to keep going down the leader path, I actually have to get to a point where where I'm enjoying that kind of work and I'm fulfilled by it, and actually like gives me energy. And I knew that wasn't the case when I was uh, primarily coding. I knew I had to. Yeah, I I totally, to to your point of of remembering the engineer giving you that feedback, 
just it makes me mention, mention that it's, I remember, I think about the advice that I got our general counsel at Tilt were maybe 60 employees, 70 employees, mm-hmm. and he said, he said something very similar to me that I still think about all the time. Mm-hmm. He said, James, if you can learn to give up control, mm-hmm. it might not be the task that's at hand might not be 100% of what mm-hmm. you want or 100% of what it should be even mm-hmm. if you are even that omniscient to know right. exactly what yeah. it should be. It might be 90%, but it allows us to move in 10 different directions at 90% rather than one at a time at 100. Right. And that feedback, I think about that 90% in 10 different directions, mm-hmm. part of the quote that, that he said to me, I probably think about that once a week. That's awesome. And that was maybe three cool. years ago that he probably doesn't even remember. Uh, and maybe he does, but Josh Horowitz, a shout out. It, it, it sticks with me and in, in the people that have that uh, CEO seeking self-awareness, mm-hmm. those moments mm-hmm. really can be a five minute piece of feedback, but right. really shift or just help anyone that you're working with. It doesn't have to be CEO, mm-hmm. kind of see something that, that right. we're all uh, so, um, can be so blind to of of just that by the byproducts of right. of approaches that we might have, as well as my one of my favorite leadership books that I, I bring up all the time, sitting right up there is is what got you here won't get you there, hmm. and to just aspects that you're talking about, just the book keeps coming up in my mind of of whether it was being able to write a paper at lunch and, and mm-hmm. being able to procrastinate and still succeed, right? That can get you to a certain point, but then it can actually be the limiting factor for you getting mm-hmm. to the next point or or being that uh, amazingly efficient individual contributing coder right. versus abstracting to a management yeah. layer. It's uh, that concept uh, still floors me when I think about just our strengths can be our weaknesses. Yeah, yeah. So, so But I'm thankful okay. that our skills and interests can be so fluid and flexible and can be developed. Like now I get such amazing energy from empowering my other team members and seeing what they can do independently Um, because like you said you can go in 10 different directions and even if you're being generous uh, or uh, like you said kind of assuming some sort of like founder omniscience or whatever most times like the teams will come up with something that's even 10 times better than what you were able to come up with and by by being that kind of retaining controlling being a bottleneck is ultimately will be hurtful to your company i think it's still important for for there to be like context shared and you know founders are usually around for years if not decades than somebody that's solving a specific problem and it's always awesome to have a way to share that context to like inform a solution Mm but i see so many things that are created right now at webflow that surprise me like to uh the degree of like i would have never thought of that what what is a specific example that comes to mind if you take a minute to think about something that just would not have happened without and was it counterintuitive to you? Did, yeah. did it, was that something that you couldn't mm-hmm. quite buy into that uh, things would be better off in mm-hmm. certain you know, realms without you being directly involved? I think the best example I have is, so like I mentioned, I, I used to run Webflow as a kind of agency where we're working on uh, websites for a lot of clients. And it just happened to be that most of the clients were dentists just because, you know, word of mouth and, you know, occasionally orthodontists when we were feeling adventurous. So I was using that as I would do the coding and Sergi, my brother, would do the design. So he'd do the design and then I'd translate it to like WordPress or something. 
something like that. But that was sort of our experience, right? So when we were starting to build Webflow, we're like, okay, how do I get myself out of the picture as the like the translation layer and empower Sergi to do all the designs? But we were mostly informed by the things that we had built before, right? So when we started Webflow about a year into it, when we um, had just gotten out of YC and uh, we're actually like looking to hire our first employee and our first engineer, Dan, joined, maybe we just knew exactly, we thought we knew that what all the priorities should be. Like here are all the missing pieces of all these sites that we built before that we really need, et cetera. We need like content management, blah, blah, blah. And about six months into Dan being on the team, sort of came to us and said like, hey, I think we really need to add uh, animations and interactions into Webflow. So sort of like turn a website development tool more into an animation tool. And, you know, we were like really we thought it was a toy. We thought, you know, it shouldn't be like a key priority right now. We're still missing all this other stuff. And, uh, but Dan was really persistent. He just, he kind of in his spare time created a prototype and just got us really excited about it. And we're like kind of hesitantly saying, okay, we'll, we'll pause on other things. Cause we only had one designer at the time of Sergi, uh, one of my co-founders. So like kind of paused on everything and, and put two weeks into that interactions product then launched it and it just took off like gangbusters. It ended up, I think uh, we did some math a year later, like half of our business came uh, really? because people were like saying, okay, I like, I, this is what, I, this is what's truly innovative about Webflow. This is what brought me there. Right. Uh, and to me, that was eye opening. It was like something that I was like really hesitant to even put into the product that soon. And I had kind of mixed feelings around like, all right, let, let's just, uh, let our engineer have some something to uh, something that they're passionate about. Get it out there so we can get back to the true priorities or whatever. But it ended up really opening my eyes. Like that should have been a key priority, yeah. right? I just wasn't seeing it. And that's because Dan came from an agency background where they did a lot more creative projects, right? They weren't right. working with. They had a much broader range of experience uh, across many different types of clients, not just like the kind of boring small business ones we were working with. And that was just the perspective I wasn't seeing. And we've had so many of those examples with a lot of the tools that we've built, like across e-commerce, across a lot of the uh, sort of like layout tools that we've built, and even like small features that you think are small, and then you launch them and you just realize what amazing things people do with them, that that original person that just kind of wanted to use their kind of spare time or their 10% time to to like build a prototype around, like they saw it all, all along about mm -hmm. how valuable it could be. And it just like seeing more and more of those surprises is awesome. Yeah. Well, and man, there's, and there's so many things that I want to, so many different topics I want to touch on from the background as an artist to, to, you mentioned coaching and just the last seven years of, of building Webflow. And, and I want to get to all those, and, but I want to ask one last question on, on this from your artistic mind, mm -hmm. what did, what did that, that example of people really wanting these animations, what do you think that, that, what was the reason behind that? Because yeah, it, it sounds superfluous. Yeah. Um, and yet you saw it in the data. Yeah. It's, uh, I should have seen as an, as an artist, as somebody, cause I, I studied 3d animation. I wanted to work at Pixar. <laughs> like I, right. I wanted to give these kinds of tools to myself and to other people, right. Mm -hmm. The kinds of tools that existed in the 3d animation space, which are all about creativity, right? Like they're, they're so technical, but they're really there to empower somebody to tell a story. Mm -hmm. And I actually should have seen that, but I think I got like swung too much in the other direction of like, just 
business-minded thinking uh, after spending several years at, at Intuit and uh, kind of oh, as we started Webflow, thinking more around like, okay, what's the competitive landscape with like Weebly and Wix and Squarespace? And those are mostly kind of cookie cutter and, you know, they solve like business problems. You got to get like a brochure out there. You got to get like a sales lead form and all these things that solve actual like quote unquote actual problems, but missing the forest for the trees uh, a little bit in in thinking that, you know, a lot of the times the reason people have a marketing site is to tell a more unique story, right? Mm -hmm. To That's truly what was to different. To separate from right, the crowd, that, right? that Exactly. That's what was different. And in order to do that before Webflow, you needed to have a developer that not only was skilled to do that, but also interested in that. And that's usually the last thing that gets on sort of like a budget or whatever. That sort of polish of like animation and uh, interaction polish is like, you know, we'll get to it if we can or whatever. But by putting it front and center giving those tools to the designers immediately without having to rely on developers, it was a perfect Venn diagram match of like things that they're interested in and that have value to customers because you're building a unique brand. And that was sort of the magic combination. Um, and, and I think that is the reason why creative tools are so powerful is because as the as a person creating the tools, you often don't even have any clue uh, about the limits that people will push that tool to. And it's usually surprising. So I'm pretty sure that when like the Pixar engineers started creating sort of like 3D scene and like animation tools, et cetera, they, they weren't imagining the kind of like, they're mostly programmers, right? They weren't imagining the kinds of, you know, things we see on screen today. And just like, you know, whoever wrote, created the first typewriter, they weren't imagining all the words that could possibly be written in a novel, et cetera. I think the, the core important aspect there though, is the foundational tool set, right? Like by adding some, you know, the fact that you can do a whole range of things, like the fact that you can even animate an object and give it like behavior and and let that behavior be driven by like the interactions that the user is taking. Those core constraints are pretty simple, but then when you see what people do with it, it's like, holy cow. Uh, it's almost like giving kids Lego blocks, right? They're essentially like 10 different types of blocks and colors or right. whatever, but the things that they can build with them with with their imagination, kids and adults, uh, I don't wanna <laughs> kind of limit it to to just kids, but the, the combination of those building blocks can be amazing, right? right? You and can create art with it, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a, it is, and it's almost a microcosm of what Webflow is, which is just abstract away the difficulty yep. or that engineering cost. Mm -hmm. And when you take that cost away, the, the, yeah, the, the directions are, are infinite as well right. as just in this, uh, in that uh, tiny example, you know, there is such a demand for these delightful, unexpected, surprising, differentiating mm -hmm. little animations. Right and expressions, mm -hmm. artistic expressions that it's, yeah, it isn't just superfluous. Yeah. It is someone puts their hair a certain way to represent and express themselves. Yeah, yeah. And they, they, why wouldn't they want that with their online quote unquote pamphlet of right. their dentist's office? And it's not just that, then we then we took that same approach of like key, key sort of technology foundations or like building blocks and applied it to more things that relate to building software. So you know, we started with sort of like the visual layer and where you're kind of building how things are perceived and interacted with. But then we we expanded into how things are actually represented. So we built this essentially like a visual database builder where you can like describe any object. It's almost like object-oriented programming where past CMSs were kind of like, oh, we have pages and we have blog posts and then you have all these UIs to sort of like manage that stuff. That was kind of the traditional model. But what we did was just 
like any object, it essentially modeled what how a programmer thinks about a database, right? They can just add tables and columns and relationships between those two, but we made that a lot more human to where you can say, here are the blocks I care about or like the structure of the things I care about and the actual items within that structure. And then I can like visually tie that structure into representing it on on a UI. And people build like, a lot of traditional things with it. Like here's a blog post that has a title and a, and a body and a category or whatever, and I'm just gonna list them out. But then people take that same exact building block and build really, really creative things with it. Like where they'll represent, you know, voters and like politicians and from that, like draw relationships that, you know, whether there's sort of like political af- affinity or whatever. And then my, one of my daughters actually built uh, and still maintains and like this is pride and joy of her life is she has this website called Emma's Animal Facts and she models out animals and like facts about animals uh, as objects with relationships between them and then collects like we- super weird obscure animal facts about those animals from all of her friends and essentially maintains a database, right? And it's not really, it's not a blog, it's not a traditional website, it's still like an a mini app that has as its database like an animal it's like imdb but for animals for like super weird animal facts and for her that's like a piece of software that is like a part of her social life now and you know something that you know helps develop her learning goals or whatever and it's amazing how how old how old is emma when she 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 was nine yeah Uh, yeah now she's almost 11. that is incredible yeah and she keeps like a notebook all the time just to make sure she captures these things as they come up and and then like gets them into the database and i love this entire last decade and i think we're going into a supercharged decade of lowering the threshold of creation Mm -hmm. because it is i mean it's just uh having a nine-year-old build a website for you and i when we were growing up that would have been 14 year old a 15 year old you would have been a prodigy Mm-hmm. And and that's on the upside. The downside yeah. is you would have been one in a million because right, no right. one was yeah. was doing that at at very few people could do that at at nine mm-hmm. um, or even ten years ago. Uh, a nine year old building a website was built. A, I remember building a video game when I was like fifteen. Went mm-hmm. to video game camp nice. and built a video game and, and just thought this. No one ever played it. Maybe mm-hmm. you know three of my friends played it, but it was just this. Uh, even one user is infinitely more than exactly. Zero. Exactly. No, it it was was all I needed. It was just, and it was the sense of accomplishment, but it was the beginning of feeling like, wow, I can make other Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. And that is way more important than the thing itself. And then for for Emma or countless nine-year-olds out there Mm -hmm. with something like Webflow, it is, um, its impact cannot be, it can't be overstated, not on just that project, but the creativity that Mm -hmm that sense of accomplishment that now an 11 year old, she feels like a, mm-hmm. an accomplished 11 year old. It's, I mean, you just abstract, are you, you put the timeline at the next 10 years and what she's going to create. It's phenomenal, but I would love, it's a great segue to ask if you could give listeners a breakdown of this, this no code revolution mm-hmm. that's, that's taking place right now. Mm-hmm. And, and you all are the, the poster childs of uh, poster children, uh-huh. poster child of, <laughs> of this no code and, and low code movement mm-hmm. uh, to where a nine-year-old is creating a, a database, um, object-oriented database mm-hmm. application, which is nerd speak for a really cool right. project online. Yeah, can you give listeners a, a kind of an overview of this space the last sure. seven years or start whenever you want? I, I mean, the the no code monikers sort of started developing a, couple, a few years ago, so it's uh, relatively new, but 
at a, at a high level, us humans, engineers, uh, technologists, et cetera, we've been creating software for the last 50 plus years, right? We, uh, software is a super powerful medium we have now, especially with the internet, augmented with the internet. It's, it's a way that we have to solve problems that impact the entirety of our life now, right? I got here on a lift, which is powered by software. You know, you and I exchanged emails and you probably have a spreadsheet of guests and all these things are- Put this out online instantaneously, exactly, right? Exactly. And that's sort of like the, the, the big examples we know about, but there's so many problems that are solved with, with software behind the scenes that, that just power the world today, right? Uh, from just like workflow automation to, it, it just makes humans' lives easier to get computers to do work for them. Right, so finding can, a phone number of a dentist exactly. and having a website be able to exactly. render that. Yeah. Exactly. So it's we know that it's a, a very powerful medium, and right now, software is you know the Mark Andreessen sort of coined this term of software is eating the world. It's like solving a lot of the things that we used to do manually are now uh, being automated by uh, these new, so, not even automated. Sometimes just like new use cases are created, like Airbnb, right, where. That was a, a brand new type of wealth that was created where people are able to to make a living from sharing their homes, et cetera. Uh, and there's, you know, the examples are pretty legion there. But the key thing is the people who are creating the software are the people who know how to code. And and only one out of every 350 people or so know how to code. That is, you know, a tiny percentage. It's around a quarter of 1% of the world's population or half a percent of like the online uh, internet connected population. And that disparity between consumption, so people using software and, and the ability to create software is massive, right? Like everybody who's using the internet is using software, but only a tiny, tiny fraction is creating that software. And that's because learning how to code, learning all these frameworks is really, really hard. There's just a lot of complexity that goes into that. And no code is really all about applying the types of democratization effects for creation that we've seen in other disciplines and other mediums to software. So we kind of saw a similar shift in reading and writing, right? Like, uh, you know, during the Renaissance and um, kind of over the last 400 years, we've seen the ability to write and the ability to distribute words go from something like a quarter of 1% of the world's population, where it was really in, you know, certain power structures, you had to be like, part of the government, part of the church to like even have access to a printing press, uh, have access to distribute writing, et cetera, or even have something like a typewriter that you can like go share uh, your words with on kind of a mass scale. And now we're in a world where almost everyone is on an equal playing field when it comes to literacy and literacy is not split between, oh, the vast majority of people know how to read, but very few people know how to write we're kind of in the same playing field in terms of having access to that ability. And I'm not saying that everybody is going to write a novel like JK Rowling or whatever, but everybody has the ability to try, right? There's, right. there's like a lot more grace and forgiveness there than there is in creating software. Like creating software is still so brittle and so specialized. And so many of the, the things that needed, that are needed to create software are so repetitive. Like almost every business is, is you know, creating a database and, and writing, like figuring out how to like layer in business logic and UI and the database, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so much of that is what a lot of people call uh, accident, accidental complexity. They're like, com it's complexity that people don't really need to understand in order to solve that same problem. To make an analogy, there's sort of like the difference between the telephone and a telegraph. People solve the same problem with both. They just want to send a message across, right? But a telegraph requires the knowledge of Morse code, right? Or the reliance on a telegraph operator to, you know, go translate that message in Morse code, electrical signal, send it across, translate it back, 
you get the same message, right? But you can, you know, we know now that we can solve that same problem by just like using a directly human interface such as a voice and and just, you know, dial a number and have a conversation. So the need to know Morse code was accidental complexity, right? It was it was complexity that we can remove from the equation. And you still have to know how to like have a conversation. You have to know what to say, et cetera. So no code is all about like getting software development to the core principles. You still will have to understand how to model data. You'll uh, have to understand how to think about like objects, uh, relationships, you know, a blog post has a category or has an author or has multiple authors, relationships like that. And you'll still have to understand how do I create something that has value and it solves a specific problem. So all the important things about like product design and understanding a customer problem, you'll still need to know. But no code has started, uh, like the entire goal is to remove all that complexity of like, okay, how do I spin up a server? How do I, how do uh, I find a developer? Exactly. Chat to the wrong one for 13 months going in the wrong direction and exactly. And then throw up your hands and for the next 15 years, not touch anything website. Right. Because you're so reliant on that and that brittle piece of code or whatever. So, so no code is all about raising that percentage of how many people are able to create software, not just consume software. And the main, the main assumption of this entire movement is that it's going to be way too hard and it gets harder over time to become a coder. For me to become a coder 25 years ago when the web was first uh, getting started, like literally I had to pick up a book on, and, and I had to have a copy of Dreamweaver where HTML and CSS were barely new technologies with like 20 tags or something like that. And I essentially was a full web developer after reading a book. Today, you have thousands of technologies, thousands of frameworks. It's like a huge, overwhelming um, kind of problem when you try to say, oh, I want to become a software engineer. Right. Instead of kind of telegraph to telephone call it, it the accidental complexity exponentialized became exactly even, even more complex and i understand why because we're solving these like more and more complex problems and it was a much faster path to building those than trying to find an abstraction layer that represents this stuff in ui and that's that's a really hard problem it's almost like you know it's a lot easier for us to to type something into a computer directly than develop a voice to speech or voice right. to text kind of algorithm that knows how to translate that to text intelligently, right? So that's why no code took a while to figure out, okay, so over the last 25 years as the web has like matured, what are like the core problems that are like repetitive and we can find a visual abstraction over them that solve 80% of most use cases. We're never gonna ha- we're never gonna get rid of the need for coders. In fact, like the no code movement is gonna expand the need for coders because we're gonna create a lot, like drastically more software, and that's gonna have exceptions around the edges where you're gonna need a lot of engineers to figure out things that haven't been visually abstracted yet. But the reason this movement is taking off now is people are starting to. It's the combination of it's kind of a perfect storm of the tools are catching up where they're capable of doing a lot of things like Webflow where even five years ago, marketing teams wouldn't touch it because there's just a lot of things that it wasn't able to do. Now, entire marketing departments across like even like multi-hundred person startups are operating even better than having to rely on coders because they can move like super fast because the tools are not really capable. Same thing happened with like 3D animation software, right? It was a toy at first where all the like, you know, Toy Story 1 was made primarily with like engineering talent. Uh, because those are the people who knew how to develop like that rendering technology, that animation technology, et cetera. And then over time, as the tools matured, like they were capable to do so much more that you put creative people in charge and they're able to 
you know, with the support of the technical uh, folks building the actual tools, they're able to make, you know, much more kind of creative and impactful uh, things that way. So So the tools are catching up and uh, the demand for creating software is just exploding, right? People are realizing the kinds of things that you act, you can actually solve to a software, like even basic things. Yeah, like, what are some of the things? Uh, I, you know, tracking animal facts is, right. is, is a very, you know, not business critical one, but think of something small. Like just the other day, I have like a work calendar and a, and a uh, personal calendar, right? There's all sorts of reasons why I don't want to share one with the other, right? But I also want to make sure when I plan a date with my wife, that my time at work is blocked off, right? Mm-hmm. So I set up a really, like typically I would sort of try to figure out the API of like Google Docs or Google uh, Calendar and maybe work up the energy even as a developer to like create some sort of bridge or whatever. But I just want to Zapier to set up a Zap, like when this happens, uh, do this. When this calendar gets an event, like block the same thing on the other calendar. That's a super simple automation of my life that just adds a lot of value and removes the need for like a personal assistant to go and like kind of track the overlap makes their life easier makes my life easier uh and it's it's like a problem that i've solved right or when i turn on the switch like this should happen uh that's just outside of business right in in the business world like there's so many problems right like you you look at the amount of use cases that are now solved with like tools like webflow and zapier and Airtable by like product teams and marketing teams and things that usually would either not be done or you would need a much larger investment of like, okay, now we're building internal tools and we need to like staff an engineering team, et cetera. Yeah. Well, the, the, the example of blocking off your, uh, your work calendar with a personal, you know, a, a personal calendar event automatically is a perfect example. When I think about the no code movement, I, I know in my own chronology of understanding it, it was kind of this, this thing with, it, it was this narrative arc in my mind where it's like, well, there are a lot of really cool pamphlet sites that need mm-hmm, to be mm-hmm. created. That's really important, um, and that and that's great. And really, I, you know, dentists are massively right. underserved, or yeah. doctors that need their own websites. Uh, for this podcast, just having you know a static site at, at uh, for our own URL for the podcast. But it went from thinking that I realized, oh no, I'm only thinking about this in terms of. 2009 or yeah. 1999, right. how the web was used, mm-hmm. versus exactly what you're touching on. Which I then got to the point where I was like, man, anyone, imagine these tools becoming so easy that mm-hmm. anyone that says the phrase, I wish mm-hmm. this app did X, mm-hmm. and then you within 90 seconds can make that app mm-hmm. do X, whatever that edge case is, mm-hmm. everyone yeah. says those things. Yeah. Everyone is like, I wish, I wish Facebook did this. I wish mm-hmm. Twitter did this. I wish Gmail did that. Right. I mean, I w- someone needs to create an app that mm-hmm. when you when you do X yeah. on on Google Calendar, you know, and it's that type of stuff is right. so global. It, those things are said, you know, billions of times a right. week or at least a year. Mm-hmm. And when you follow this this trend, whether it is Zapier or, or mm-hmm. Webflow, it is or uh, you know Ift, and it really is that rich of like, oh, take these edge cases that you wish. Yep. When it's raining, you get a notification on your phone rather than mm-hmm. needing to look out the window. Yeah. Um, and, and those are the small ones, right? Those are the ones where, uh, so software is made up of three big chunks. There's the database, uh, sort of like the uh, data model. You can think of Airtable that way. It's sort of the source of truth of like what is the, you know, what's happening. Then you have the UI, 
which, you know, in something like Airtable or Spreadsheet, it's sort of like a, the same UI for everyone. But in Webflow, you would have, uh, you could create any sort of UI that you might want, right? And then you have business logic, which is what happens when somebody interacts with a user interface, like what happens to whether it like impacts the data or causes some sort of external event uh, outside of that. Ultimately, no-code tools will get to the point where there will be you know, right now you sort of have to glue a lot of things together. I think we'll be in a place where we call it visual software development, where it'll be like a centralized development environment where you can do all three in one place. And of course, we're trying to make Webflow that uh, kind of one of those uh, one of those platforms. But it will be it's probably for a lot of things for a lot of things that really matter. It's not gonna be like a 90 second thing, of course, but it's going to be to the point where the kinds of startups that were created five, 10 years ago, like Airbnb, like GitHub, et cetera, will be able to be created by an order of magnitude, if not two orders of magnitude, number of people. So one example uh, I had recently was um, one of the executive assistants on on Webflow's team were trying to plan this offsite and we're using Airbnb and, and Airbnb is you know, not made for corporate offsite planning, right? There's just a lot of things that you might care about, like having a whiteboard present or having like the ability to stream to like an Apple TV or whatever. That's that's more like breathers space, right? Mm-hmm. But we really wanted this sort of feel of kind of being in a home and spending more time together, et cetera. I'll give a little shout out to Airbnb for business, which is really great. Uh, white glove service for for business travel and conferences. But okay, for this premise, fair, fair. I, no, you're you're right. Like, but let's say there's let's say there's some sort of niche. Like somebody is really interested in creating kind of a a business around helping companies find you know offsite space, right. et cetera, right. and in like super white glove, and they just have a lot of different things that they want to happen. Like when somebody requests something. I get a text message. Everyone then, traveling gets a text message. Right. There's just yeah. like all the things that you can think about when you're trying to solve that problem and you're really right. passionate about it. Uh, right now, there's no place you can go to and say, like you can only really go to like a uh, software engineer and say, I have this idea. Right. And then how do we build it out or whatever? But it's exactly what you said. Like we want to get to an end state where somebody that has that idea has the tools at hand without going through a four-year college or like a boot camp a software bootcamp to try to figure out a hundred different technologies to glue that stuff together. We want people to focus on the most important things, which is the logic, how things look, how they're presented, how they're modeled. And I think the vast majority, if not all humans have that capacity to like think at that level. It's just, we don't have those building blocks available in a human friendly way yet right. uh, across the entire stack of what it takes to build like really powerful software, especially when you start to include things like subscriptions and like different plans and like user systems where people actually have to log in and have like a different experience than kind of like a more presentation. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it is in to build off of your, your Lego analogy and to use a pun in the same segue, the, uh, <laughs> the, it's almost as if, 10 years ago, you needed these, you didn't need, there were only these cement blocks Mm -hmm. to build things. There Mm -hmm. was, or to accomplish them. It's not even about building, it's accomplishing some end goal. Your end goal is, I don't know, keeping track of your, all of your customers. And it's Mm -hmm. like, well, okay, there's Salesforce. Okay, and then we're gonna, I guess, use Salesforce and try to bend it in the way that, and it's that or two or three other big cement blocks. Mm -hmm. And then five years later, then it's kind of like, wow, there's Google Docs mm-hmm. and Google Spreadsheets that now people are using. We could use that to manage things a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and the blocks got a little bit smaller, yep. a little bit lighter. Mm-hmm. And and you follow this trend to today where it's like, oh, I want to 
push notification on my phone yeah. whenever it's raining in San Francisco. So mm-hmm. I just know right when I wake up or it's going right. to rain that day to to bring a jacket. And it's this tiny little block that yeah. you're obviously not going to hire a web development firm right. for, but you follow this exponential curve of these blocks mm-hmm. just getting order yep. of magnitude smaller. And then you you are out of those you know, one developer out of 350, mm-hmm. five years from now, 10 years from now, maybe there's two developers for every 350, right. but those 300 people that have yeah. big and mm-hmm. small ideas, whether it's for their work or whether it's mm-hmm. for their personal life, 300 of them are able to utilize the web, utilize absolutely technology and in these tiny and, and big blocks. And yeah, and the important thing about even the tiny blocks is that behind the scenes, you know, the, the moniker's no code, right? But even behind the scenes of that tiny block, like when, you know, the weather's cold or when it's rainy, send me a text notification. There's so much code and technology behind that. But the key part is that there's, you know, specialists behind that one block that know how to maintain it. You don't have to worry about hooking up to like Twilio's API and like some weather API. And then whenever those things change, you have to go change them, et cetera. It's a similar analogy to what happened with the cloud, right? Like it used to be that every business had to go, uh, even if as a person you wanted to host something like you, if you were running anything serious, you would have to like go buy your own servers and get co-location space and set up a network. And like, if something fails, you got to rack a new hard drive and set up RAID and install the operating system or whatever. And today it's like, you press a button and like new machine, right? And then mm-hmm. you have access to computing power. All that complexity is still there. In fact, there's probably more complexity, but to the person actually use, who needs that computing power, so much of that accidental complexity is gone and you're you're using what truly matters to you. And and I think the no-code movement will will keep making those atomic building blocks more and more available. That way people use more of their ingenuity and creativity to solve like specific problems for them because now they have a lot more of that, like that tool set of Lego blocks that they can marry together to make the solution that they actually want. And it's just like being an engineer, right? Like to your sort of cement block analogy, Throughout that entire time, we've had, like, you could be an engineer where you don't even have access to cement blocks. You have, like, sand Mm. and, like, whatever ingredients go into cement, right? And you have to know how to do all that stuff. You have to know how to build your own, like, blocks. access to all of the equipment to do it, right? You have, you know, ultimate flexibility because you can build anything, right? But you have to have so much knowledge to to figure out. It's like, you know, having to learn how to manufacture your own pencil if you want to make write a note to to a loved one right. um that's the kind of you know complexity that's not needed in in a lot of uh, a lot of like these cases and usually it's not going to mean that people are like developers are switching to a different way of like working it just means 100 times many people have access to that kind of power the similar way that youtube has democratized like access to you know creating videos and having a voice uh, on this like megaphone of uh you know being on youtube where before you had to have access to professional studio and a distribution mechanism and like you know some way to like reach a bunch of voices and now it's kind of like if you have a story to tell and you can like build a following it's it's pretty magical because a lot of that complexity has been taken away right Right. i want want to talk about so you started webflow seven years ago Mm mm-hmm and I want to talk about where the space, where you think it'll be seven years from now and continue that on the that moon, line probably. Of, yeah, exactly. What kind of Legos will be on the moon if yeah. we continue that <laughs> that metaphor? But before we continue that, mm-hmm. that side of the conversation of where it's going seven years from now and where this, because I, I think it's just um, in my own head, I'm, I'm so fast. I went from thinking like, okay, people need websites and, and mm-hmm. pamphlet style mm-hmm. websites to years later being, whoa, 
this mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. you know, it's like clay around yeah, yeah. my life. It's right. it's not even blocks anymore. But before we get to that, tell me about seven years ago. What before the moniker No Code existed? Mm-hmm. Did the did the moniker Visual Programming exist seven years ago? Actually, just give me a whole breakdown of what it was like. Did yeah. you think about this becoming this massive space seven right. years ago when you first started? Uh, absolutely not. So the visual programming as a term did exist, but it meant something a lot more specific. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Scratch. It's sort of like a yeah. a visual thing that MIT developed to teach kids how to program. But it's just a visual representation of things that you would write in a text editor, like if this, like really low level kind of logic constraints. Yeah. But the, at the end of the day, they're kind of one to one. similar to Thunkable? Uh, Thunkable is higher level. So okay. Thunkable is closer to no code. MIT as well. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, Investor in Thunkable. Props to those guys. Awesome. Also in Great the no code space. Awesome. But it that was kind of a, that's, that's been a, a theme from the, like the sixties, uh, mm-hmm. when, you know, there's been a lot of research. There's something known as like the mother of all demos where it was demonstrated how we can like do programming in a, like a direct, direct manipulation kind of way. But that sort of fizzled out after a while, like not, not many people. People put a lot of research into into that field, but I actually started Webflow in 2005 the first time, and there was two other founding attempts uh, like be, uh, before the fourth one in 2012. And way back in 2005, I wrote my senior project on like this idea of user land software development, and I knew it was going to be a thing. I just didn't know how uh, like how foundational it was going to be. To me, it was just like a personal optimization thing. I was working at this agency where there was a good design team and I was an intern that was translating these designs into like sort of like SQL statements and like UIs to kind of capture data and like list it out on a website. And a lot of it was so repetitive. I'm like, okay, something like I can make my own job easier just by creating a tool that helps the design team sort of do like a form builder style of input and it will auto-generate the things that I'm doing manually. So it kind of started then, but I never imagined that it would be, uh, you know, anywhere to the kind of scale that it is today. And then as the years went by, I sort of saw that. And then like companies started popping up like Weebly and Squarespace and uh, Wix. And it sort of, and the thing that sort of killed my interest in the space for a while was the death of Dreamweaver, uh, where I thought like, okay, Dreamweaver is going to be like the, if my assumption is true that a lot of people are going to be building these things visually, then it should succeed, right? And it was kind of an industry standard type of tool uh, back in the early 2000s. Um, yeah, we, I remember learning in, in, in high yeah, school. And yeah. I guess that was visual programming, but it was... Right. It, it was actually quite complex. Uh, and, and, yeah, and the, in its own right. the main outcome of that was like, tools like that generate such crappy code mm-hmm. that it's never going to be scalable. And I think a lot of people, like the vast majority of people, walked away with that assumption. I, I would say the vast majority of people still have that assumption. Yeah, about. it was. It was like the the intersection you don't want slightly complex, right. not as easy as it it should be, and very limited in in the way it could be used. Right. And the key problem with that, and I think what a lot of like most people missed, was that it tried to be too clever to make it too easy. Uh, and not respect the foundations of the medium. So for example, the way sometimes I use this analogy of like, let's say you have Photoshop, right? Photoshop is used for 2D, like you're creating business cards or like you're doing photo editing, photo editing et cetera. Website, yeah. But to say, okay, everyone who's used to 2D kind of design use the same tool because a lot of people are used to it. 
use it to generate 3D movies, right? It's just not going to work because you're not, it, it's not built for the medium that you're targeting, right? Mm. So Dreamweaver and, and tools like it uh, that try to make it so easy to try to make a web development tool into a graphic design tool and say this works just like a graphic design tool, they try to make it too simplistic where you just simply can't express all the nuance of what you would need. So something as simple as, you know, uh, an element being 600 pixels wide on a small screen and growing to be larger as you resize your browser, you just can't draw that in a graphic design tool. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's exactly what Dreamweaver was. They were like, whatever you do in a graphic design tool will somehow find a way to translate to code. But it didn't force the people using that tool to actually understand the core principles of uh, web development, right? They didn't actually understand that everything is a box, that everything has to be nested. There's like, there's meaning in hierarchy. There's right. there's a lot of things that, you know, like text, uh, you know, crawlers or whatever, they have to go and Flash made the same mistake of like, just focus on what it looks like and then we'll deliver it and nothing else matters. And that's where the programming approach had a lot more benefit because like people were actually structurally correctly building these, you know, layouts and applications, right. et cetera. And that's what the current breed of no code tools like Webflow actually gets right. And that right. what you respect those foundations and you actually like Webflow just becomes sort of, if you're familiar with dev tools or like web inspector, mm -hmm. it's actually just that plus plus. Yeah. It's, it's like it uses. And I'm using it right now for a, uh -huh. a, uh, a landing page or oh, it, awesome. it'll, it'll end up being an e-commerce page, but it's just, it's, it is as opposed to, yeah, when I say Dreamweaver was complex, it's almost like Dreamweaver was for something super simple. But if you had any modicum of taste mm -hmm. or yeah, wanting yeah. something to right. be slightly impressive, yeah. then you end up getting into this insanely nasty code base. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and you can't recover from and that. You can't re and then you're just like, okay, this is actually more, it's like, you know, trying to, I don't know, create art with, with right, five right. foot yeah. chopsticks. It's yeah. like, this is more trouble than it's actually worth versus something like Webflow where it's, it's like in a day you mm -hmm. have this thing that you might end up building from scratch mm -hmm. in, in code for right. the, the last 10% of right, nuance right. that right. you, that you want, but you have 90% of it for that team communication, mm -hmm. for that testing, that iteration yeah. with, 10% of the cost, 5%. Yeah, and now, now that used to be the primary use case of like, you know, the last 10% you go do somewhere else. Right now, or especially over the last two years, we now have entire teams running 100% on Webflow, like uh, especially marketing teams where, you know, you have uh, something like lattice.com, right? They have such a wide array of uh, case studies and all these things that you would, um, if you go to their website, there's just so much like custom data and you would never guess that this was built completely visually without a developer. And they're constantly iterating, constantly adding things. Uh, same thing with like HelloSign, et cetera. Yeah. And how big is Lattice as a, in terms of- Over a hundred people. Yeah, hundred yeah. person company. And like and over 10 million in revenue, I'm guessing at this point. And, uh, and we had a company uh, get around, so they're yeah. pretty well known. They switched completely to doing their marketing in, in Webflow and they just like, 10x their iteration speed like mm -hmm. they were afraid to touch that code base before or you have to like borrow engineers from product and engineers don't usually want to work on like here's a photoshop file or a sketch file and go translate it into html and css or whatever right. it's some of the least inspiring kind of work so nothing got done right and and now they're just like iterating really quickly and their their brand is evolving like zendesk is powering their entire 
like style guide through Webflow, like and this thing is public, right? It typically would require an entire uh, entire engineering team to go like take some Figma, you know, set of documents or some sketch documents and translate that to code. It's like working live in the environment that you're you're going to ship right. to, uh, and I think that's the magic of it. And and once the the tools get even more mature. We're getting like the sky's the limit. Um, you know, you asked about seven years from now. I think people are going to be creating entire the kinds of the kinds of software that you know we're talking about building on Ruby on Rails five ten years ago is going to be like uh, it's already happening. Like there's hundreds of products that were like top three on Product Hunt over the last two years that were built in Webflow, right? That you would never guess that were developed without a developer. Companies that get into YC and get above a million dollars in revenue that only then are adding engineering. That's that's like a whole new world, right? And we're just scratching the surface right now. And these things happen in these step function changes where mm -hmm. it's, you know, there's going to be a unicorn built on just yep. Webflow mm -hmm. and then everyone shifts because yep. it just, for, for so many of us, it's just path dependence or... Yep you know, mimetic behavior. If everyone's doing it this yeah, way, we can't yeah. do it differently. And then like Y Combinator for for us or for me, I don't know if this was uh, the, the same for you, but once there was these massive companies that mm -hmm. went through it, it's just like, oh, well, that's the way to do yeah. it. Instead of yeah. that's a way to do it, right. becomes the way to do it. Right. Um, at least that was for for my co-founder and I when we when we applied in 2012 and and you you guys were 2013 2013 yeah yeah a year later before we touch we in, applied in 2012 but we got rejected <laughs> that's right I read that online and uh, and it's actually um, I want to bring up a tweet that you posted uh oh, um, uh -oh. And, not a good idea yes oh you're you're gonna pay for your sins flat no this is a, your vulnerability online your openness online is is something that we mentioned before i kicked off the um that's all russian bots by the way yeah it's, yeah. Oh, it's not you you have yeah um, okay well you can claim that for anything that you don't want attributed to you but the kind of staying on this last seven years and and uh maybe holding this carrot for the next seven years a little bit longer i just wanted to touch on this tweet that you wrote, um, and this is really goes back uh, 15 years. So you published this last year, and it says 2004 idea, mm -hmm. 2005 first try failed, 2006 married, 2007 second try failed, 08 third try failed, 09 kid number one, 2010 day job, 2011 kid number two, 2012 fourth try YC says no. 13, YC says yes, funded. 2014, hard work begins. TLDR, keep trying. And and I know you went over this tweet a little bit on uh, This Week in Startups, but mm -hmm. I, I wanted you to walk me through uh, when you're putting that tweet together and, mm -hmm. and looking over a 15-year mm -hmm. um, time horizon of uh, when you posted that in 2019. One, what made you write that? and then And then tell me about these failures along the way and stutter starts to starting Webflow. I think what made me write that is seeing all the, uh, how demotivated uh, some some other founders that I was trying to kind of guide through putting together their YC applications, just the way they talked about comparing themselves to others and being really honest about how I felt at the time. Like I felt I was failing the whole time uh, and still do to a degree where it wasn't like this, you know, crushing it, killing it, whatever. It was always kind of this mental space of 
is this the right thing I should be working on? Am I the right person to be working on it? Is it worth investing time into this compared to, you know, my family and, and other kind of opportunity costs, like having an actual day job that'll help me save up for retirement and things like that. And just being, just seeing how discouraged people can get from, you know, having one or two things go wrong early on in the process and just kind of thinking, okay, that must not be a good idea. And kind of reflecting back on how many times I had, you know, some semblance of clarity, like this is obviously a good idea to, holy crap, like other people are doing this much better or it's too late or it's, you know, it's not going to work out or I'm not going to find the right people uh, or convince the right people to work on this with me. And trying to remind myself that even in the times that uh, it feels like things are falling apart, which you know, these days seems like almost like a daily thing that I have to get myself into a place where I give myself permission to to fail and to stumble and to, uh, you know, own own the fact that, you know, there's going to be a lot of things that I don't do as well as other people. And there's good, there's a lot of things that I can do better than other people. And that's just natural. And I think giving myself permission, giving other people permission to be like, you know, be themselves and develop develop in in ways that are compatible with their lives and interests and passions, et cetera. And, you know, a lot of it is also, I just want to own the fact that it's survivorship bias, right? Like I can give all this advice around like, oh, here's what I did. I tried like three different times. I cashed up my 401k. I borrowed like 80k in credit cards and uh, Which is know, all true for listeners, right? Way, and this and, is all part of the yeah. And did that while I had very young kids with like almost no health insurance and going through multiple surgeries and selling cars and you had uh, to take out your four hundred one k to pay for a daughter's surgery. Yep, uh, because things were yeah. And uh, like those things, I I would if if I was talking to to a friend over coffee right now, I would not recommend any of that, right? Because ninety nine percent of the time, these things don't work out. So it's a, like, you have to take what I'm saying with a giant grain of salt of like, this is, you know, I lucked into a lot of things that happened uh, with Webflow. And also there's a huge amount of privileges that I kind of came into it with. So that's a, maybe the the main theme was I was trying to be more encouraging and also just remind myself of like, just the huge amount of luck that I had in, in pulling through with, with all the challenges that, that we've had over the years. Well, I think this part of the reason of starting the the podcast was that there are these uh, slivers of the story that people hear, mm-hmm. and and it's that ten percent, the the mm-hmm. you know the iceberg, ten percent of it that's above the water. Versus right. for you, it's very in a very real way. It's it's like no, this actually was uh, started it multiple times and it mm-hmm. failed. Mm-hmm. And there is, for, I think, for many people, they might have seen maybe a, a news headline and. August of raising mm-hmm. 70 plus million dollars mm-hmm. for a series A, which is mm-hmm. crazy and, and, and largely unheard of and be like, wow, that mm-hmm. must've been overnight success. Yeah. It's series A, it's a startup. It's these people that, that don't look too, too dissimilar to maybe me and what I'm working on. And it's, right. and it's something that happens instantaneous. And maybe you do a little research and you see, oh, okay, well, they started it seven years ago. So mm-hmm. it's been a lot, you know, seven mm-hmm. years of work. And still mm-hmm. that's only a sliver of the story. Reading even 5,000 words of a mm-hmm. detailed breakdown is, right. is so far from what that lived experience would, would be like of failing a mm-hmm. couple of times. And then, and one of the things that I want to ask you about is just, 
the spouse dynamic and the family dynamics of saying, okay, this this has not taken off. Mm-hmm. My previous efforts haven't. Just I know what that is. That is a very tough conversation to yeah. have to say yeah. to a spouse and a partner in life. Mm-hmm. Hey, can I take this gamble again? That includes you and mm-hmm. our children. At this time, yeah. you had it was it or did two you kids have now? Two yeah. kids, one and three. Was that many conversations? Did it take many months? Did you did yeah. you have to start it as this tiny small thing that mm-hmm. is? Hey, don't worry. It's just not. It's right. a nights and weekends. It actually walked me through the very specific details of of that dynamic with, with yeah my wife. yeah my wife uh, her spouses do not get nearly enough right. credit. Her name's Natalia. She's amazing. I think it's in large part why I'm still sitting here today. Uh, her faith in my own dreams, like giving room for. Uh, for me to work on on what I was dreaming about. I think because when when we got married, this was after the first attempt, it was a I was already actively kind of like winding down things from that attempt not working. She already knew that it was it was something that was really important to me, right? Like I I went into pretty much maxed out the only credit card I had during college to buy the domain name, which I thought like once you get the domain name, like everything explodes, right? So if you can get a domain name like webflow.com, then you know, you're kind of golden definitely not the case but she knew it was important to me but it was also like hey kind of the traditional you know we both grew up in russia and we have very traditional kind of like in very religious families where it's you know you got to provide for your family you got to do the traditional thing and you know have kids as quickly as possible and it was just a foregone conclusion that i had to get a you know a real job like a day job so i ended up going into it uh, right away after uh, going to college that wasn't even a conversation. It was sort of like that that part of kind of wanting to explore Webflow again was a conversation between us, but it was it was like, hey, you know, maybe someday. And then as I started working into it and sort of the second time, a year after I started working into it, this was uh, 2007, Natalia saw the uh, kind of the drain of working something for over a year. I was on the on the payroll team of working on something that just like doesn't bring any energy, right? Like the working on something that, you know, like I, I have this other idea that I really want to work on. And it's, it started kind of developing in our friend group, thankfully, where Intuit had this awesome program where, you know, the, for the first three months, they sort of fly you out to Arizona and co-locate you with the customer support team uh, with a bunch of these other college grads. And you, you learn the product, learn QuickBooks, learn uh, their payroll stuff, and just like uh, develop this affinity and this empathy for customers. But as part of that, you know, we're all sort of in a mini dorm right together that Intuit's paying for and it's like a great time to make new friends and so a year goes by and like with these same friends we kind of like start getting that itch of like okay this is the this is 2007 like white combinator was becoming a thing like convertible notes were becoming a thing and there's like people started having more dreams of like okay how do we spin out and work on something uh and of course webflow was like this idea that was still you know top of mind for me and you had the domain the whole time had the domain the whole time and convinced uh, one of my one of my buddies, Kyle, who was also a year into uh, into uh, into it, was like this amazing designer, and another uh, buddy, Joe, to like you know like okay, let's incorporate, let's put up uh, like these uh, decks together, try to get funding, try to get into YC, and uh, and Natalia saw the energy of that, like okay, this is exciting, right? Like and you know we didn't have kids yet, and it was like really uh, saw how much like more lively life became when there was like a goal right 
And for many reasons, like we can spend a whole podcast episode on that, like that attempt didn't work out. We had a bunch of trademark issues and we ran out of money to like to pay lawyers for all the incorporation stuff and like various sort of family things where like people kind of had to step away and focus on day jobs and that kind of went away. But the energy of that, you know, like when I went back to sort of more focusing full time uh, on Intuit stuff, Natalia saw sort of like the decrease in sort of like passion and what I was actually like wanting to do. And then about a year later in 2008, I tried to start again, but just by myself to like, I started, you know, kind of moonlighting, writing code. Um, as I had a few clients on the side, try to actually develop them into some, uh, instead of just building a site from scratch, try to build like a tool that I could use to, to build their sites uh, or like the CMSs. Um, but then one thing led to another and our first daughter arrived. And once that happened, it was, you know, like really focusing on on that, you know, lots of sleepless nights and just like really focused on the day job, keeping things afloat there. And uh, what year was this? This was 2009. Then, uh, you know, a year and a half later or a year and two months later, we found out we were pregnant with second daughter. Uh, so she was born in early 2011. And then it was sort of like, okay, this is life, right? Like we have to sort of like the the fading memory of like these startup dreams or whatever is like now you have two people you're responsible for. Or did you, can't you like, feel locked in to where it's like, sort okay, of like we, oh, we were already window, right? Like we were planning on, I mean, I was still kind of thinking we had like these sort of side conversations around like someday, you know, like when we're empty nesters or something like that, like, we'll cause, cause we, at that point we already moved back to Sacramento. Um, so we had like our family around us. We we're looking to buy a house and kind of like settling down. And I honestly thought that like the window was closed in terms of even like the market opportunity because like Weebly and Squarespace and Wix were like growing to become really huge uh, and getting like these big fun funding rounds, et cetera. Even though the product's different, I had thought that it was like they're going to get into that space mm -hmm. um, like much faster than I could by myself kind of working nights and weekends. And then something kind of magical happened and totally unexpected. So in 2007, when like the second attempt uh, where we, you know, actually incorporated, filed for a trademark, one of the things that happened was we got denied. We got this official notice that like, hey, some other company in Florida like um, objected to you filing for this trademark in this class. So you can't have anything to do with the websites. Uh, that was one of the reasons why we got kind of like demotivated. We actually like re try to reincorporate as another company name called Marked Up, like HTML Markup, but with mm -hmm. the missing E because, you know, you had to drop all sorts of vowels to get domain names right. back then. And then when when my second daughter was one, uh, was one, so this was late 2011, like November 2011, uh, we had moved multiple times since, uh, you know, the second incorporation attempt back in Mountain View. I received in the mail a, like a certified letter with the trademark certificate for Webflow from the, the filing in 2007. So somehow like we were in some queue and some, you know, that company like dropped that trademark or forgot to renew or whatever. And it was like, holy crap. Like this is some sort of sign. Right. And you said this was 2000. This was late 2011. 11. So that start like that sparked conversation like like i you know went to entirely how to explain this right? right like i uh you know i and at this time i'm still sort of i still have the webflow name and i'm still operating as an llc and building sites for clients right working with my brother like here and there just for side income right to try to save up more for buying a house or whatever but totally you know not thinking that this is going to be a big thing but then when that trademark arrives like 
this this is like you know why would i ever need a trademark i'm just doing like a rinky dinky little um you know single person agency yeah yeah so that started like the brain uh, sort of cycles again and that's when we like legitimately started thinking all right how do we save up for this like this this has to be like it it obvious that you want it like my wife would say it's obvious that you want to do this I don't, I don't want you to like look back on life 20 years later and say that you know you didn't take this chance um and at that point i had our you know like six or seven years of experience like professionally programming uh, i felt like my skills were in a place where i could actually like get into it i built you know their uh, one of their first like SaaS products and we ended up scaling it to several million dollars in revenue so i felt like i had more confidence to to sort of when that idea came in and thankfully we had enough like enough of a kind of avenue to sell some like if i was to leave into it like there's you know a bunch of stock being left on the table and into it you know they gave out a bunch of options and i was there at a time when you know their stock hovered around like 20 bucks so i i had all these options that if i had stayed it into it would have been worth like close to half a million dollars or whatever but i ended up selling them thinking like hey we can sell all this stuff we'd have 30 grand that's like three months of being able to work on webflow and we'll in three months we can you know incorporate we can build a kickstarter video we can like raise 300 grand or whatever it can like use this to support our family we would have the same salary as before and you know this sort of unbridled unbridled optimism of like you know obviously this will all work out kind of convinced myself and my wife that this is you know and was it willful unbridled optimism knowing the the backdrop being uh, failed attempts before what is there honestly i wasn't even thinking about that i was like you know this is just meant to be it yeah. it was a almost like just an, an optimism that i couldn't explain like i just knew it had to it was became very obvious to me that this is something that needs to exist and another thing that that happened very um serendipitously but that gave me even more conviction was i saw this video by this guy called brett victor called inventing on principle i think every creator should see this and this was like early 2012. Brett Victor. Brett Victor. Create, what is it called? Inventing on Principle. Okay. And it's this video about like, it asks, pauses this question, like, why do you do the work that you do? And it happens to center on like the work that he does in his life that gives him meaning all around direct manipulation. Like how do you create technology that is for like animation tools, right? He gives one example of like using in Flash, like traditional animation tools. And one where a kid can use an iPad with their finger and animate the same thing like in 10 times less time and something that looks a lot more natural and organic. So it's the same like telegraph telephone example where you can learn a bunch of complexity uh, and do the same thing, or you can find an abstraction layer that unlocks that ability to a lot more people using skills that they already have. And seeing that video is just like, okay, like this has to happen. And he just happened to have another uh, paper that he wrote called Magic Inc. that sort of roughly describes the idea of like building software visually that all those three things combined was like okay this is a no-brainer like it just has to happen and but we still had these like you know i kind of put together this plan in a spreadsheet of like here's what would need to be true for us to how much money we need to save for us to have like some runway here but it, it had all these assumptions that were pretty dumb looking back where you know we will get the cheapest health insurance because you know that's only $300 a month or whatever, but it was like this catastrophic insurance that, you know, has a really high deductible and then a really high copayment type of thing, which ended up biting us later. But it was, you know, we had this sort of like kickoff date where we were both inspired uh, and we went with our kids on like the top of 
close to like Mount Tam where we had this sort of, we were midway through doing this uh, ABC date thing where like A is arcade, B is ballet, and C was uh, <laughs> um, Chinatown and like all the way down. And I was like, this I date was like inspiration and there's two other eyes there around like okay we're doing this thing we're like moving to the bay area we're gonna like start start webflow we'll try to this was before i even like convinced any other co-founders to join it was just like i, I knew i had to make it a thing and was it was it uh many conversations with natalia to get her comfortable with it uh, yeah or? yeah i think it was it was over the course of two months after receiving that uh trademark that thing. trademark thing and sort of like looking through the numbers and we were like still in credit card debt at that point like we were not the best in like financial planning but we had enough of an ability to get some liquidity from like stock sale to start something and have some confidence that we we're gonna you know make a kickstarter video and, and get more money or whatever you know those three months of runway turned into you know we ran out of that money a month and a half in because incorporation costs a lot more than we thought kickstarter video actually we had to pay somebody to to make that video it ended up that talk about accidental complexity the oh le- yeah the yeah. legal side of setting up a business and it and just the, talking about the legal side we spent 10 12 and a half grand on the kickstarter video because we had to like rent a space and do the whole thing and like there's a person that came in that helped us with the script and there's like a day of shooting and then we found out that kickstarter doesn't even support that services (laughs) so we threw away the whole thing and it was you know we wanted to repurpose it for indiegogo but you know the whole the whole we'd have to reshoot again we didn't have the money and very quickly that three months of runway just disappeared so out of desperation we applied to yc that that uh, same fall of 2012 thinking that's sort of a last ditch uh and that's when all the bad financial moves started happening like started kind of writing those checks to yourself with like you know the credit line kind of balance transfer things and then that december like on christmas day we found out that my daughter had a hernia which which means that had to have all these tests and like this is where that catastrophic health insurance really didn't help that much because you know all those tests cost uh close to 10 grand and then you know that's all out of pocket uh which was money we didn't have we had to sell a car then that's when all the conversations started like okay we can't do this anymore like you have to go um get your job back and into it uh my brother was uh, living with us at that point what Uh, was your emotional state during this that that's a huge like punch in the face like reality check wise i thought i really thought in september when we started doing all this that i had like the perfect plan uh where this there was like slack built into it how many months later this was september this was before no this is so september we started out with like uh and and we did pretty um you know illogical things like okay we're starting out that means we've got to get new computers and uh you know use that sort of like nest egg of, that we put into the company account uh to to buy like new macbooks and uh right. whatever i know that i know that feeling every new startup i do i'm yeah. like i need a new computer yeah. <laughs> it is so tempting or silly to be like no this is an investment yeah. but it's yeah, yeah so that was september and then by december we're completely out of cash and i was already at that point maybe 30k into credit card debt because uh also didn't uh, anticipate how much like just because we had like a um you know a car that was financed and you know rent was not because we had made that decision in sacramento and then moved to to the bay area not anticipating like how uh how high the rent was going to be just the daily the monthly cost of like you know maintaining family stuff that was already like expenses uh 
when when your paycheck goes away those we were not prepared for that so by the end of that uh year especially at as the surgery was happening like we had already like i was already talking to natalia making plans and sergi uh sergi's my brother um around sergi moving back to san diego getting his job back me moving back to sacramento and getting my job back and then maybe we'll like moonlight and try to keep working on what we had so far and by that time we already had like the yc rejection we were not sure if what we were building like we'd pivot away from that because you know it just kind of was a pretty demotivating thing to uh to think that okay here we have like this awesome demo and we thought it was really going to take off so we kind of gave ourselves a um it wasn't an artificial it was like a true deadline where like i negotiated with natalia all right six more weeks and if like just give us six more weeks and we'll put together like the bare minimum of a demo of something and try to put it up on Hacker News and see if it takes off. And that six weeks got negotiated into nine weeks uh, when we got to six weeks and saw that it wasn't, you know, being done and we still had some ability to like keep borrowing on credit cards and stuff. I was able to borrow some money for my brother, older brother. So as we got to the end of February, it was sort of like, okay, we have this one shot. So we created uh, you can still see it, playground.webflow.com. It's not even a product. It's just an idea for what the product is going to become. You couldn't even create an account. It was sort of like the bare minimum of the interface that, that we want to ship because that's like, we're just out of time. Thankfully, we put it up on, on Hacker News and it just took off. And from that, it was like hope was back again, right? And it was like just one more thing. And my wife is still skeptical around like, you know, we had hope in so many different points where you know, this almost happened then and here's what actually happened. But I think getting into uh, like having that Hacker News post take off so much gave us confidence. Like, okay, like, okay, one more thing, like we're actually going to try to apply to YC and see if they, if we get an interview, then we can keep going. And then we got an interview and then, okay, if we get in, then we can keep going. But if we, once we got in, there was actually like some investment component to it. So we can finally like pay ourselves minimum wage or something like that. So there's like hope at the end of the tunnel. Then it's a two, two and a half month program. And then we'll actually get real funding and then we'll be able to like, you know, get back on our feet. Right. So it was always like just the thread of hope, like that, that, um, you know, ray of hope. It was enough that it was in, in the idea and the challenge of building this product was challenging enough that it was like most of the time was spent, like really thinking about the, the product and just like, you know, developing it and just so thankful for, for my wife for being patient, even though I know many times she had like, you know, like the, the uncertainty of like, holy crap, what did we get into? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to do an episode at some point with spouses mm -hmm. and just ask them their below the line emotional arc with their, their spouses going through the ups and downs and, and both are, you know, it's, uh, both are scary. The, mm -hmm. It, you know, the elation is scary. It's like, okay, we're on this roller coaster a little bit more. And right. the deflation is scary because it's obviously you don't know when it's going to end. It's just yeah. a trend line that's going down. It's um, the, that patience, it, it's, you know, it takes a village to raise a baby and it takes a village to, to build something of, of, you know, significance, um, whether it's a piece of art or whether it is a, a company cannot, yeah, overstate how, how it's good and bad because you you also your love for them mm -hmm. you feel that stress that right. you know that yeah. that your own decisions are are putting them under but yeah. you hope that it's an investment for yeah that's the for that's the days that's the toughest challenge because um 
I was watching a show a while ago. It's like an alternate history thing for all mankind. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, you know, the alternate history is if, what if Russians landed on the moon first? And, and one of the, the one of the um, sort of sideways topics later on is like the astronauts as they land on moon, sort of have this conversation around their spouses, right? They know their spouses are having like these nightmares and yet they make the choice to push this frontier of, mm. you know, being first on. But there is an aspect of like selfishness to it. There's an aspect to like this give and take and like it, that's that's a super hard balance, right? And for me, it was the thing that, that made me feel comfortable with it was like having all the conversations, like just being honest uh, with, with what's actually driving me and what's actually important. And in many ways, my wife was the one slowing me down and making sure that I don't miss the force from the trees and like don't mortgage the relationship with my kids or like chasing some dream that even if it's wildly successful, it's totally not worth it if it means, uh, you know, abandoning a kind of hope of a deep relationship with my children, right? right. Even if it leads to like some multi-billion dollar company or whatever, it's totally not worth it. So um, I'm super thankful that that we were like in that life stage where the important things were already there and uh, she kept pulling me back into like, hey, don't forget what's actually important and, right. and make sure you structure your life in a way that provides for that and, and gives an outlet for like, you know, creative and professional pursuits. But, you know, people, people don't lie in their deathbeds thinking like I should have had twice the ARR than I actually did. They, they regret the, the relationships that they didn't invest to and that they didn't develop. And, and that's something that is really hard. It's kind of like trust. It's hard to rebuild uh, once, once it's lost. Right. Right. It is, uh, and in those times where it's, it is, at least in my own experience, where it is just um, those really low moments. I always I think about this this uh, quote of Mark Twain had a quote when something like I can survive two weeks on a single compliment, mm -hmm. and and as you're talking about the six weeks, then nine weeks, yeah. then minimum wage, and getting into a YC interview, then YC getting into Y Combinator, and it just reminds me of yeah my. My own creative journey is just these little, you know, I could survive two weeks on a single point of validation. Yeah. And you have these 14 things going wrong, but this one thing saying, nope, there's something this way. And I think that it's it's almost irrational, uh, but I think that's one of the main uh, drivers for entrepreneurs. If it was fully rational, I don't think we'd have that many businesses. Uh, so it's like something about that drive for like purpose and meaning. Why, uh, do, you, why do you say that we wouldn't have that many businesses if it was fully rational? Yeah. Because it's it's a completely irrational thing to go, uh, you know, leave a stable and well-paying job to take on a pursuit that has like no, like honestly, zero of the motivation that I had was uh, was financial related, right? Like I I didn't like I think I told you earlier that my ambition was to work on a product just with my brother. That's what I thought it was going to be. Like it was like the the meaning was a lot more important than like the outcome a lot of people like make this claim you know why we need to incentivize entrepreneurs like with lower taxes or whatever is they want to make a bunch of money or whatever maybe if greed drives some people i understand that but i think a lot of times people people see like hey here's something that's not optimal in the world and there's a better way and i see it uh, and i want to make it real like that's a much deeper drive uh, at least for me than um, you know, some sort of like financial outcome, outcome or whatever. So I think if, if people were purely optimizing on like rationality and like chances of success, people wouldn't start businesses. People wouldn't try like new ideas. They wouldn't build new products because it's, it's like, 
the amount of risk involved in that usually is is like pretty uh, pretty high compared to kind of the safe path. Right. But to uh, to Webflow's credit, it's if you can also just make it so much less risky, so much less costly mm-hmm. to start yes, something, yeah. to get that narrow edge of the wedge started, then... And then, that's that's a beautiful part of our mission and vision is that we empower other people to make a living. And that just feels so wonderful, like working on a tool like that, because people like write us postcards like, hey, I have this business now, or I have this service, or I have, I was able to build this consultancy. And... Uh, the only reason I, I was able to do it was because the tools empowered me. Um, I had to learn a lot less. I like actually take advantage of my creative skills, et cetera. That's magical. Like you can't, that's almost like a cheat code. Right. I don't know if there's anything, I don't know if there's anything more highly leveraged for usefulness in the world than to empower creatives to be more mm-hmm. creative mm-hmm. and uh, creators to be more creative. And yeah, it's, it is, uh, I think it's a, divine quality in all of us that, that we want to create mm-hmm. but it is it is becoming ra- radically cheaper in every direction whether yep. it's music art uh mm-hmm. web development starting a company but it is still i mean it was just a few years ago that you're telling the story mm-hmm. of just everything that you went through yeah. uh, to get this off of off of the ground i did want to ask you said that you had a religious upbringing mm-hmm. w- was there ever a religious or spiritual component to to these last 15 years. Oh, absolutely. Just the the way I live my life and the way I want to treat other people is like very much rooted in sort of like the same principles of, you know, treating other people the same way that I would want to be treated. And even like I would even take it to a deeper degree now of like treating other people how they would want to be treated because a lot of times you have completely different standards. Uh, and that's something that uh, I've tried to bake into everything, like including our corporate values and how uh, we apply kindness in the workspace and and treat uh, relationships kind of as being at least as equal and usually a lot more so than sort of like the bottom line business uh, aspects. And there's a lot of like negatives to how I grew up in like the Piper religious, uh, it's almost like to a to a fault, right? You couldn't like go dancing, you couldn't talk to American what kids. What was your you religious background? Uh, it was Protestant Baptist. Like it's, it's, it's one of the things that, it's the reason I'm actually in this country because uh, you know my parents, my grandparents, the, their, their parents uh, went through persecution in Russia, which was, you know, the Soviet Union was very anti-religion, sort of saw it as like the, you know, the opium of the masses and kind of the, the competitive thing that uh, competes with the state in terms of like authority. Etc. It was terrible because you know, like my great grandpa was um, like shot by firing squad just for having a Bible in his home. Um, so my oh. grandpa grew up like with all the siblings, and and you know, my dad grew up with like the the shadow of that. And when the authorities, even my dad's boss in Russia, when he found out that my my parents were Christian, you know, it leads to all sorts of like, okay, now it, it was it was almost like a you know something that's now used against you, right? Like if you don't do this, I'll let other people know, et cetera. Uh, mm-hmm. When my brother and I, when our teacher found out that our parents were Christian, like they, you know, were the only two in, in class that were um, like our, our parents were uh, of that religion uh, or religious at all. Uh, like even the teacher would bully us, right? It was sort of like, would give us more homework, would give us more. There's just a lot of, a lot of things that were, it, it wasn't at the point where people are being like imprisoned or hurt anymore. But it was still, uh, you know, like a socially punitive kind of thing, of, yeah. right? This the a, a lot of things that we're we've we see kind of in the 
uh, fight for civil rights along many different dimensions here uh, in in the state still, unfortunately. So, but it's also the reason why my family was able to make it here as refugees, right? It's one of the reasons uh, why like their asylum was approved and I count that as like a huge point of like luck and privilege that we were even able to make it here because otherwise uh, we'd still kind of be living back there and life would have been drastically, drastically different. And it's still like a major, major part of our, of our families. Uh, like a lot of the traditions, our parents are, it just kind of defines a lot of uh, how we, how we live life, how we do traditions and holidays and. Um, do you practice today? Yep. Yeah. The, uh, what, do you attend church here in, uh, in, in South Bay? In yeah. South Bay. Yeah. Yeah, they, we go to my wife and I go to, and our daughter go to Reality SF here in, oh, awesome. in San Francisco. A large, might large meet some of my siblings there. Yeah, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a great um, great service. I grew up Catholic, and mm-hmm. and and I talk in the intro episode of of my fascination with uh, with Western and Eastern philosophy, and and obviously the roots. Mm-hmm. Um, the early philosophers yeah. are religious, uh, and and or Eastern philosophy is probably more. I think more aptly described as as philosophies than right. than religions, and mm-hmm. so they they intertwine quite quite closely, and uh, the interests in both, and and it's in my own entrepreneurial path. I don't well, I, I don't think I would have, uh, I don't think I would have become an entrepreneur if I didn't have that uh, model. And I it took me thirty years to really even mm-hmm. understand. Wow, this is like a mental model. Um, a capital M mythological model in my mm-hmm. head mm-hmm. that is imprinted of many generations. Yeah, yeah. That this is how I I view the world too. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember one personality test said that James believes strongly in individual sacrifice and hard work for good things to happen. Mm-hmm. And it was a, it was neither good nor bad. It actually mm-hmm. I think many good things happened for all of us that we had nothing to do with that we were right. not even partial co-authors and that just right. happened for you but it was a very strong part of my way of viewing the world that mm-hmm. um hard work must happen for for good things to happen and i think that went back to my family's pretty strong yeah. um strong catholic ethic of mm-hmm. of you know it's uh, it's uh, a tenet of catholicism that hard work is is equal to faith to get right. into heaven and, and you know i probably spent my teenage and 20 my 20s having no clue mm-hmm. uh, about that aspect of what's reinforced at one two three four five 15 years in but my daughter at two i can see that these stories mm-hmm. are imprinting models and right and uh whatever story i mean mm-hmm. we can be reading about elmo going to the yeah. body and it is <laughs> wow there's some really strong imprinting of behavior that that yeah. happens that it's it, it i mean it probably wasn't even until a year or two ago before I really realized that wow there's some real neither good nor bad. I think there's there's some real some real danger to to the imprinting and and the the human fingerprinting of these models. Right. But it's a really foundational aspect nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Just to to round that subject out, have you had to go go to that? Do you feel like that that faith has been a a wellspring for the really tough times of I think it's uh, your entrepreneurial journey. To be honest, it's more of the community because there's a lot of you know in my sort of faith community, there's a lot of people in Silicon Valley and like dealing with the same. It's almost like a, a group therapy type of uh, you, you know you're all there for each other, etc. I think that's been a lot more. And thinking about models, actually, now that I think about it, Protestant religions are a little different in that 
there is a, a more like a grace component rather than a, uh, a work or like a performance. Huge thing. flaw, huge flaw in the Protestant. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Where that has sort of, and, and seeing a lot of the, the ways that I've experienced life, like a lot of the things that I've uh, had uh, uh, sort of at my advantage were not things that I earned, right? right? They're not like right. merit-based. They're just like pure luck or privilege or it's hard to explain how it, it would be pretty arrogant for me to say like, oh, I, uh, I earned that, right? right. It was oh, just I something. chose that. I was, exactly. Yeah. Uh, or I worked really hard for that. I mean, there's absolutely a ton of hard work, et cetera. So I think certain uh, parts of that have also reflected in just the, like the way I, I think about, you know, organizations and treating people where you give people the benefit of the doubt versus like you have to go earn a bunch of trust, right? Or you... Uh, you like make no room for mistakes. And um, like, there's just more, for a lack of a better word, there's more grace associated with like giving people room for humanity um, mm -hmm. because everyone on earth is like struggling with something or going through something. And it just, it just feels so much better when you have a relationship with somebody and you can, you know that they're there in like a more forgiving fashion, right? They're there like to serve you and, and to sort of partner with you rather than, uh, you know, constantly watching you like a hawk to see if you're going to make a mistake and and having that sort of like a notch against your favor in, in the future. It just feels like a, a more calm and relaxing way to live, right? Mm -hmm. When you know you have like grace and forgiveness from other people and like, you know, some some give and take. It just feels like when you have that kind of relationship with people, it's uh, you kind of have more permission to be human. It's interesting to look, sort of zoom out from history and think about a lot of the things that we really care about today, like social justice, et cetera. Um, even just the the inherent value of a person's worth uh, just for being, right? right, was a completely radical thought, uh, you know, thousands of years ago. Oh, and, yeah. Individual uh, equality is, uh, that's a it's a yeah a crazy thought if you go back five thousand years right so it's sort of like and a lot of these things were informed by these you know s spiritualistic or religious uh radical thinking uh that even if you don't have that imprinting like early on in, in, a, in a kind of a religious family like society at large for better or worse uh, hopefully for mostly better is uh benefiting from that kind of through the centuries of of elevating humanity over uh, kind of like the material, right? right? Of of the pure, like in the evolutionary sense of like pure survival or pure right. pure uh, kind of optimization uh, of you know more resources, more uh, life, etc. And and I think that's a that's a good thing because it's just uh, like I mentioned earlier at the end of your life, like that's the part. Those are the things like the relationships with other people, the intangibles that you can almost one way to see it is just data, right? Like interactions, if you really believe in kind of like this uh, fully deterministic life, right? Where right. our brains are just firing uh, signals and it's just, you know, all kind of coincidence that me and you are just having this conversation. What, even if you believe that, you still give value to like the human experience of kind of reflecting back on on things that you really have a lot, unless you're, I guess, a true psychopath, right? people at the end of their lives like really cherish the the relationships that they've built and the experiences that they have with other people not what they have or what they what they earned or what they were able to and a lot of times like what they were able to build or like their legacy you know for me it's not because it's like okay check off uh, kind of built a startup it's because 
I was able to help other people live their lives easier. I was able mm -hmm. to help other people make a living. I was able to, uh, it's always comes down to other people. Like how do you positively impact other people's lives? Uh, and that just feels good. Like, it, yeah. I don't know. It's the best form of self-interest, right? right? Yeah. The, uh, and uh, I won't go into uh, it too, too much, but the below the line is, I mean, the podcast is all about these kinds of uh, foundational uh, mental models and, and a psychological approach to, to work. And I'll, and it, it, you know that conversation with two friends that uh, that are you know the in vogue thing I think is to be um, anti-religious as if it's outdated, but I think there's so much uh, wisdom that that we can rescue from mm -hmm. not the cartoon version, uh, right. but uh, but the, the real radical version. And right. I think things like equality and social justice mm -hmm. uh, today being so um, it's not a coincidence uh, mm -hmm. whatsoever. That those two are are taking place so so strongly in a, in a Western world, or things like a and separation it's, of it's church still and gonna, state. It's still going to be radical for like centuries. You know, one of the most radical things is, um, you know, there's this kind of parable, or uh, it's it's not even a parable. I think it's just a recounting where somebody says like, "How do I live a, a you know a meaningful life?" And it's like sell everything you have and like help others with it. Right? We still have kind of our our own selfish desires for like safety and security and etc that um it's going to be impossible to expect that uh humanity will ever reach like these totally like live for others kind of like there's this book uh about the saint francis of assisi i forget exactly what it's called uh something about the heart and you like what do you take it to the extreme of finding like ultimate meaning of like giving up your life to sacrifice it towards serving others and that's a pretty freaking painful life right mm -hmm. but it's it's this paradox where at least if you believe those writings that you find ultimate fulfillment right, right? but there's like you know well the 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 three miracles um and the the uh deeper intellectual uh side of it or more intellectual side of it was saying that the three bigger much bigger miracles uh, which are from any a stretch of the imagination, what a miracle is, I think what suffices, which is, uh, you mentioned one of equality, individual, mm -hmm. equal, everyone being equal. Mm -hmm. That is a massive contrast right. to anything that was, um, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the Greco-Roman, the Greco-Roman religions or you know, polytheistic religions to Indian caste system. Like mm -hmm. this was not, this was not a, uh, a well-known concept. Right, right. Second and it's miracle. not self-serving, right? It's like uh, it's not right, yeah. there to like serve some power or whatever. Right, right, exactly. The second miracle being the separation of church and state mm -hmm. comes from largely comes from. And I'm a and, and I I am a I avid fan. I actually spend more time on the podcast talking about uh, philosophies like uh, Vedanta more than Christianity. But mm -hmm. these are staunchly Christian uh, ideals: the separation of church and state, uh, and the concept of uh, give unto Caesar. What is Caesar's? That is, mm -hmm. and God. What is God's? That was the beginning. Pay your taxes, of, friends. Yes, pay your taxes uh, for sure, especially crypto friends. Um, <laughs> and and that separation is not uh, that was not something that existed in in mm -hmm. previous state religions. And and third, at least in the the West and the, the Roman Empire. And then third is, which I think is maybe the most incredible self-sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So every other religion, every other large religion at the time, you know, the concept of sacrifice has been around for a long time. You know, mm -hmm. the animal sacrifices, right. you would have human sacrifices. But the concept of self-sacrifice mm -hmm. and getting back to, I guess, tying it to a bow of, of my almost preternatural understanding of, of sacrifice 
hard work for good things to happen right. um, or sacrifice self for that ultimate self-interest of it's the most mm-hmm. uh, fulfilling. That is a very concretely Christian uh, mm-hmm. ideal in the West. And it's borrowed, I, th- I would assume, the historicity of it would, would come from the East, but right. in the Roman Empire, Christianity was the most Eastern geographically and philosophically concept in the Roman Empire at the time. And that's that concept of personal sacrifice is that was radical yeah. Yeah. Um, to it to the degree of, mm-hmm. you know, at least the uh, the idol, the the hero of of this Jesus right. Uh, right. character to the ultimate degree of of death. Right. Uh, self-sacrifice so that those things are you know they never this type of conversation is why i love this podcast mm-hmm. project because it's just it never comes up when in a business conversation would these things come up and yet yeah i had no idea you had a a, uh, a religious background until this conversation and and talked about it quite a bit on various threads on Twitter, but yeah, you have. Kind of, I, yeah, th- well, I, I must have missed those. It's uh, it, they're not the things that get the most right. engagement on uh, yeah. on Twitter, at least what I've seen. And uh, uh, so maybe uh, it's I should look closer. But um, but Vlad, I've got two questions for you, and mm-hmm. uh, we'll wrap it up with these two. One is tell me three stories that have helped shape who you've become as an entrepreneur mm-hmm. and as a human. And and I'll save the last one for last, but. What two or three stories come to mind that have helped shape who you've become? I think the the first one I kind of alluded to in just the story of how we were able to leave Russia, uh, which um, again, I had no control over at the time, but just learning more about it uh, from uh, my grandparents and my parents after we were already here uh, as I uh, became an adult, was just just flabbergasted at the the things that had to combine for uh, all that to, um, uh, actually happen. So my parents didn't even want to leave. Like they had, uh, kind of the, the propaganda machine, that worked well in that, you know, America's evil, they're going to corrupt, uh, the youth. And, and it was really my grandma, my, my dad's mom that took it upon herself to like, essentially for, I don't want to say forge the documents, but fill them out on my parents' behalf. And not only that, it just so happened that she found out that these documents even existed, and it was a it was a twenty five thousand refugee quota uh, that was opened up by the the Bush senior uh, administration because some like Protestant uh, Pentecostal not Pentecostal yeah Pentecostal person who um, but like out in the far east of Russia they were like like literally being killed for for their faith and they had a more like that religion was more outward and that you know they spoke in tongues and like things that. Uh, a lot of people thought was it was really weird, but they they suffered more persecution. This person like was able to go to Congress and sort of like uh, was able to escape the country and like give this sort of passion plea in in Congress and and that opened up like the small quota that somehow some uh, some person was visiting a very small town um, in in Russia where we lived uh, visiting this church that my grandma somehow heard about that. And he was leaving to Moscow the next day because he had the forms on him. So she filled them out, kind of forced my parents to wow. to sign it. And he took those forms with him to Moscow, to the embassy, and turned them in the next day because he was already flying there. My grandma's sister, she got the same forms, but wasn't able to fill them out until the next day. And then they mailed them in. And uh, they far missed the, the window of the 25,000 allocation. They only ended up coming to America using like family reunification laws like nine years later. So it was like, you know, some, my parents didn't even want to go. 
the combination of like this person being available and flying it to uh, the right place at the right time. And then my parents like kind of overcoming this, okay, well, you know, once we got noticed that maybe this pathway is open, pick up their life when they they were like both 33 at the time with six kids. And um, my dad had like an okay job where he finally thought that his life was kind of in order to pick up everything, you know, language that you don't know to a country that you've heard a lot of horror stories about and, and just pick up everything and go there. Like that to me, the more I learned about that uh, story. And then like we arrived into New York and find out half of our luggage is missing. And, you know, those like our worldly possessions, right? There was, wasn't even real luggage. It was like bags that my mom sewed together from like rags, that, uh, from dr- rugs that we had, not rags. And half of it was missing. That was like a devastating thing until the next day when my dad finds out, finds out that they will actually pay money for, for that stuff, right? And I think they got $2,500, which is more money than we've ever had in life. And my dad was able to buy his first yeah. computer, IBM 386. And that started sort of the journey of like my dad getting into computers and getting us into computers. And, you know, a lot of uh, the direction of my life wouldn't have happened. Like, A, if it didn't come to America for sure. And then if that like incident of losing luggage didn't happen, probably would have taken another several years to save up that kind of money. And every new journey starts with the purchase of a new computer. Exactly. As we, we touched on. Yeah. Um, so that, like, the, I think about that a lot because it's it's not only, um, like, just the, the sheer luck of, like, this was at a time when uh, America had some pretty prejudiced views uh, against Russians, uh, you know, because like- What this, year was this? This was uh, when that law was passed. When we submitted the application, it was late 89, early 90s. Uh, so kind of the end of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's still a lot of tension. And, um, and also knowing that like this would have only worked for this specific religion because like a lot of, like it was the predominant religion in America, right? We haven't seen that kind of, you know, hospitality to to people that, for example, don't look like me, right? And right now we're seeing like a totally opposite policy to uh, refugees, and et cetera. Right. Uh, so it's, it's just a different like, religion, yeah. It was, it was such a, um, you know, a stark contrast to the the welcoming that we saw because we were like the right religion, born at the right time, was the right skin color, all those things that, you know, completely unearned, but still um, led to to the outcomes that that um, have me sitting here today. And that just always reminds me that very little of what what I have today was, you know, because of my merit. Of course, I put in a lot of hard work, but there's still, uh, I can't claim credit to all of the stuff that's been happening because it's either my team or all these like secondary factors or tertiary factors that I had no control over and didn't deserve or whatever. And another another story is I, th- I think I kind of told it with this uh, this whole journey when we you know were running out of money, just going through these all these tough conversations with my wife around like, okay, this isn't working out. How do we go back to go back to what was working before? Just go back to the the day job, et cetera. That that constantly reminds me that you know what we have right now is not guaranteed to be set in stone forever. Like at any moment, this whole thing could fall apart. And I have to be thankful for for what we have now, and not, uh, you know, take it for granted. For me, that's a being that that close to the brink of personal financial ruin, and you know, as sort of all this tension in the family and just uncertainty, and constantly reminds me to enjoy every moment right now when that stuff is and pass it on. I, I saw on on Twitter that yeah, that feeling of grace you're passing it on quite literally with uh, with 
a recent family vacation that you mm-hmm. decide not to go on and, mm-hmm. and give a thousand bucks. I don't know if I'm getting the details right, but a thousand dollars to ten people mm-hmm. instead of going on the vacation. Yeah, thousand dollars to ten people fighting for social justice mm-hmm. in, in the world. And yeah, it is you're taking advantage of of the opportunity and both uh, for yourself, but also to uh, to extend it to others. Yeah, and that was phenomenal. that was a phenomenal to see my daughters get like really understand the purpose behind that. Not just like, oh, shoot, that means we can't travel this holiday season or whatever. It was, you know, having those conversations with them of why it's important to uh, support people who are fighting for social justice and are largely invisible or ignored or, um, you know, a lot of people see as a loud voice in the room that's kind of a lot of a lot of times people use uh, terms like and especially people of privilege and power like you and I. Uh, uh, a lot of people that look like us or have uh, the kind of uh, social and power positions that we do will say, oh, well, this is not civil. Like these are, why can't we have civil discussions? Why can't we have the the way that the world used to work, right? And sort of this this focus on meritocracy, ignoring the fact that uh, a lot of the the reasons, like one of my favorite books of all time is a book called White Fragility, uh, where it just lays out a really clear case of of how much, you know, me as a Caucasian person, like literally born on the Caucasian mountains <laughs> in southern Russia, how much I benefit just from the the way uh, the family I was born into. Uh, and my family was like super poor, right? Like we were on welfare for four years when we came to America. We, you know, my parents were, we were as a family cleaning dental offices uh, every night just to make ends meet. Uh, it was like super embarrassing and like really hard work. And we were doing this while the office staff is still there. You know, it's it's kind of like gives you an appreciation. The entire family? Yeah. Uh, parents didn't even How give old us a choice. Uh, this was from when I was uh, probably 13 up through uh, mid high school. That's so awesome. 16 yeah. or so. And uh, just just kind of shows how much even just being part of the dominant group and not even having to think about you know, my race being a factor in anything, uh, how many advantages that gives me. And that is a realization I, I, I wish that more people had because it's, it's easy to think like, here are all the things, the ways that I, the adversity that I had or the things, challenges that I had to go through. Therefore, everybody can pull themselves by their bootstraps or whatever, uh, completely ignoring the, the fact that there are systemic issues and these systemic forces that are centuries old, uh, that are, um, kind of add up to to being uh, some pretty powerful forces that if if we don't actively especially as as people in the dominant group like uh, fight against then nothing's going to change so so for me it, i don't know i uh, i'm just thankful for that for that remind you know, like for these stories that just remind me that so much of so much of what i have is not uh, like directly earned and deserved Therefore, it's a responsibility of mine to try to make those opportunities happen for more people that don't have the same sort of um, privileges that I was privy to. Right, that is uh, that is awesome, and uh, and it's it's super inspiring as well as uh, just it is such a a great reminder, especially if you can elicit stories. That uh, how many applications did you have? Not to take oh, this we had, conversation on a tangent. This but. was. Uh, it was amazing to see what happened there because a lot of other people got inspired and sort of like matched uh, donations. 
Uh, I think we did close to 25K. And, um, and how many people applied for the $1,000? So box? the way the way that I asked for it, it was like to nominate other people. Uh, it was over, so with the spreadsheet that we had, over 1,000 people got nominated. It was pretty clear. You had to read all of those stories oh, yeah. to yeah. see. And did you ever publish those? We didn't out of so what we what we did was we left right, it to okay. each each person to um because a lot of times the especially the we had many people specifically make the the request to not publicly say because this is like an a, an unfairness we saw some like for example a social justice advocate had a GoFundMe right to try to raise a little bit of money for for activism work and. Uh, somebody, uh, you know, one of these kind of, uh, this is an annoying part of Twitter and like these larger social media networks, you will have these sort of like anti-social justice warrior people who are, who are just, you know, trying to uh, troll around and um, say, you know, the world is going into like this hypersensitive mode or whatever. And they would see that this person was trying to raise money. They like posted an Instagram post that they went to the zoo or something. And then they, you know, completely shame the person for like, well, if you really need money, then you wouldn't be doing these like optional things, right? Mm. Uh, which is a completely, you know, unrealistic standard or like it's a inhuman standard to set on on folks, which is why I don't, you know, believe in all these things like, uh, you know, when when you subject the most vulnerable people to like the str the the stringest be uh, behavioral type norms like drug testing, et cetera, just to get food stamps and things right. like that. Uh, like it's it's just oppressive to the degree where we uh, uh, expect uh some sort of like perfect uh Saintly behavior yeah, exactly just to deserve like a tiny bit of 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 help or whatever like there's no humanity in that dang maybe um, the protestants got it right with the grace concept of yeah and, and and so we we kept uh, we have like a, a document that we shared with all the people who matched uh like all the stories and all the screenshots of like what and a lot of people thought so, well, a lot of the people that were nominated thought it was fake it was like oh i thought you know when they actually received the money they're like oh i thought this was a one of those like internet right. things Scams, or whatever yeah right so we we shared that with all the people who like match donations and we didn't sort of like publicly announce like this person that got this much money etc there's some some awesome stories that came from that and and the, the one that's most precious to me is the um like the effect it had on my daughters just to to see them sacrificing something and and doing that willingly and and uh kind of owning or understanding what impact that has on other people it's it's so awesome to hear that hear this and, and then it inspired sounds like 24 other people to do mm -hmm. uh, or other people to do very similar things it's it's inspiring thoughts in my own head and and it's this is you know as a side of silicon valley it's there's an extremely generous thought-provoking boundary pushing towards justice type of, of mm -hmm. side of silicon valley that it's makes me so proud to be a part of of it or the tech i mean mm -hmm. the technology sector it's despite but it's still it's still not even close to sort of the radical kind of idea that you know it's still to I'm be honest with you close. not right? even like, close my family's fine right we're not like truly uh sacrificing to the degree where uh you know there's like this parable of like somebody gave ten dollars and another uh like you know elderly woman gave two, two pennies cents, but that was yeah. that was her entire uh right. right like that's a i think if we're talking about like true truly radical generosity like it would look completely different no and, it, and that's uh, another hallmark of one of the reasons that i think it's it is great to get to know you through this podcast but also um online because you're you're also just saying this isn't enough and i think 
both can be true. It is a massive step in the right direction of raising awareness for these things, but also just raising the dialogue from the cartoonish characterized mm-hmm. version yep. to uh, a dialogue that is intellectual and much more human mm-hmm. than I think the dialogue usually sits at it. And it's, and it, I think you did it in a really, I mean, it's, there's the $10,000, but then it's, there's the thousand people, the right. tens of thousands of people that saw the post mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. who knows the untold impact that that can have. It's, uh, like I said, it's inspiring thoughts in my own head, just talking about it with you, but the, um, we'll cap it there so that you don't have to have any, <laughs> any, any more caveats of how you're not doing enough, because I think it's, um, it, I think both can be true. Uh, what is the third story that, that comes to mind? Hmm. This is this is one of my favorite episodes, by the way, Vlad. I, I'm, oh, I appreciate that. Is, uh, I was uh, really nervous about it. Oh to no, be yeah, I, dude. This is uh, it's one of my favorites. On, I mean, there's. I don't know if there's a single topic we yeah. haven't we haven't touched on. I think this is uh, this this story is could also be sort of like a practical one for startups. Uh, but it's it was really foundational for me as like a creative and a designer. So in 2000, so 2011, got this trademark thing and convinced my wife to start working on Webflow. Like I, I started working on it full time in early 2012 by myself. I was still kind of, I phased it out to where we moved to the Bay Area and I started working like really early hours, like 6.30 to like 2.30 at Intuit. And then 2.45 to 7 o'clock or something, I would just uh, go to a coffee shop and work on Webflow. It's like Pete's on... Uh, San Antonio and El Camino in in Mountain View or Los Altos was like my spot. I would always have the same corner. And I was such a perfectionist that, you know, I would spend two days on like an icon or whatever. I would spend another two days on getting the alignment right of something just or just working on the logo and, uh, you know, optimizing something, not actually working on the the most important things. And that philosophy, like, thankfully, I, I then convinced my brother because I was just like, okay, this isn't going to, um, I'm not the best at this. And I tried to get my brother to work uh, for me on like a little contract, which eventually turned into like, hey, why don't we just do this full time? Then we started uh, working on it to the point where you know, we we had to force ourselves to build that demo because like it was just time was running out and we we would need to go back to our day jobs or whatever. But even then we had this, once we got into IC, we we're like, okay, we have a, uh, a level of a standard uh, level of things that we want to build at which point people are going to be willing to pay for this, right? So our own thought process around like what is good enough or what is like MVP that we can like release. And for us, that definition was like, you know, you needed to have a content management system because like, what kind of website can you build that doesn't have blogging? Like literally Wix, Weebly, Squarespace, the WordPress, all of them had it. How can you launch like a website building thing without it? And a whole laundry list of things that we needed to have, uh, didn't have animations on it, mm-hmm. um, that we thought was like, you know, okay, maybe we can release something for free, but there's no value there yet. Like people aren't going to be willing to pay for it because we personally maybe wouldn't have paid for it uh, given where we were as an agency before. Like we'll just do it ourselves, write mm-hmm. the code or whatever. And I remember one very particular meeting at YC. It wasn't even with one of our main partners. Uh, it was with Kasser. Um, He was a kind of a part-time partner at, at YC. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He was just like, I think he was just went through an acquisition and kind of was, uh, you know, doing some consulting and uh, it wasn't even our main partner at YC, but I remember meeting with him with with our team. Uh, it was just three founders. He said something like, well, why haven't you guys launched it? It was like uh, maybe four weeks before demo day. 
And we're like, oh, well, we have to have all these things. And when are you going to have them? And oh, it's probably going to take us another two months or something like that. It actually took another year and a half, by the way, to build those same things. Wow. Um, but he said, look, if you don't actually ship something in the next two weeks, you're probably going to get thrown. Like, I'm, I'm going to try to, well, he implied in a jokey way that I'm going to throw you out of this program. Like, you just got to ship. And for us, it's such an uncomfortable thing. Like, everything was broken. Like, a lot of things were missing. Even after the lesson of the reception of Playground, that, you know, the demo yeah, yeah. did the, so well. and uh, Even after that, like, it was, like, we personally didn't think that that was up. Like, the demo itself, the quality of the demo was so polished for what the demo was and what the actual product where you mm. could, could look at sign up and create an account and create like actual pages, et cetera. We couldn't even, we didn't even have, have the ability to add multiple pages. So you can only build a single landing page. And we're like, this is useless, right? Like every single dentist website we built, none of them was zero page. I mean, right. one pages, right? right? You need like a contact page or whatever. Caster convinced us that, hey, there's, uh, you have to test whether there's actually value there. And we ended up launching a week later, like in a beta or whatever. And he, he said, like, you have to charge. You're, uh, and we were completely uncomfortable with charging because it was like, okay, let's put slap a beta sticker on it. And then that way we don't actually have to like go through the process of figuring out how much it's worth or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we were completely surprised that even the super limited functionality there were more than enough people who were like, okay, this is, for me, this is amazing. Uh, you know, especially people who are designers who knew what they wanted to build, but they weren't developers. And the tool let them build, like at least start to build their, like transform their imagination into something that's actually like working production, uh, like a working production website. And that was kind of a shock to the system of like, wait, maybe we don't know what we're doing in terms of like what this is actually worth. Uh, and like I said, it was a year and a half later, we were already doing over a million dollars in, in ARR wow, when we ended up shipping our CMS. Yeah. Wow. And I'm pretty sure that the company would have floundered if we didn't ship. And and from that, just learn that, you know, you got to put down your ego in, in thinking like what your kind of own, of course, you have to have a quality bar, but that should be in the service of your customers to make sure that they, you know, are not having a crappy experience. But you'd be surprised how much value people can get out of something being in their hands sooner, right. even if it's a much more limited subset of what you're thinking of, like the grand vision. Yeah. Um, so, so for us, that was a, um, like we were lucky to have that lesson uh, so early on because it helped. That's powerful, uh, yeah. Yeah. That guides the whole business for yeah. the next yeah, yeah. umpteen years. Yep. And, okay. We still made mistakes later to like, do like a year long project yeah. uh, and and not ship. Um, but, you know, that was a, a retraining of that same same lesson. Right, but, right. That's, uh, well, and you get into the game because you feel like you have taste. And, right. and I can't remember who said it, but it's basically that uh, high bar of taste and feeling like the world needs X and none of mm -hmm. these match up to it is the thing that also holds you back because you're like, man, nothing we're making lives right, up right. to that right. as well. But it's, that's a great lesson to, uh, to learn and sometimes relearn um, mm -hmm. along the way. Last question for you, Vlad, and thank you for being so generous with your time. And we'll wrap it up, but what is the topic you you think a lot about, but you rarely ever get a chance to talk about? Mm -hmm. It could be professional, it could be social, yeah. personal. Friendship. I've been thinking about throughout my entire life, I've, I would say I had a lot of friends and cousins and acquaintances and you know, social interactions, um, and even, you know, people I called best friends many times. 
Uh, but it wasn't until two years ago that I was able to form like two very, very close uh, friendships where there, you know, there was a lot of vulnerability on both sides and a lot of like time investment into like getting to know each other on like a really deep level and just like really knowing it's almost like a a, a marriage like uh, it's it's all accepting right where you know the things that are truly bothering you like it, it's it's like a therapist that loves you right mm-hmm. discovering those types of friendships for me was almost transcendent to to the degree where like i realized that it's not quantity that matters like even having one really great friend like that in life is foundationally way more impactful than having a hundred, you know, people that you're on a texting basis with or whatever, like you're working on uh, some project with or whatever. And to me like that, I feel like a lot of people are too ashamed to, to talk about sort of like the, their deep uh, kind of desire for friendship. Cause honestly, like that, that's how both of these friendships were performed was like sitting around a campfire and saying like i don't have any deep friends and two other people saying that in that vulnerability like was forged a new relationship that now is something that if i kid you not like if i had to pick right now family that friendship sort of that trifecta and um work right obviously family comes first uh, but if i had to pick between like losing that friendship and losing webflow like hands down uh like i'll start another company right? Wow. Even all the awesome things about Webflow and the team, et cetera. I, I wish that, I, I think like the two, like I mentioned, the two things, at least for me, that became obvious was to to form those kinds of uh, relationships. Like you just have to be yourself and you have to be honest and you have to take like these shots where you have to risk being yourself and being vulnerable. Amen. Yeah, vulnerable, Vulnerability begets vulnerability. Yeah. And, and maybe sometimes like, because there's, there's this concept, which I love, uh, I forget who, there's sort of like this there's three aspects to like deep relationships, right? Like one is being known, right? Uh, like somebody truly understands you for who you are. One's being accepted uh, for who you are and one's being loved, right? So you can be loved, right? For somebody can love you and, and if they don't truly know you, they're kind of like loving a different version of you than than who you really are, right? Mm-hmm. Or they can love you, right? Like there's a lot of relationships that I grew up with where like these traditional families and somebody would, uh, you know, come out as gay or whatever, their parents say they love them, right? But they don't accept them in their home, which is a, you know, it's a, it's a devastating thing for the, for that, uh, for that relationship. Or you can have like other combinations of, of the three, but or not all of them. love and acceptance, but they don't know that exactly. their child is going through something. E- exactly. Right. But when you have all three, when you feel like, okay, I've been like, I've fully kind of told this person or other people of like who I am. And a lot of times like having that experience and people sort of disconnect because it's like too hard for them to to support that that issue that you're going through or the, whatever it is. Like yeah. that's that's a uh, I wish that more people would take that risk because at some points it does work out where you have kind of a mutual you know like reciprocity of vulnerability and you do need like a mutual reciprocity of like investment into that relationship. This is very hard to like maintain a kind of one-sided relationship. Like both parties have to like really want that and and seek and and sacrifice time for that. Because like in our in our life, especially in Silicon Valley, there's always I guarantee you will always be reasons why you can't make time for like a one-hour FaceTime or yeah. a uh, you know just to just to ask somebody like how are you really doing. A twenty-minute Facetime with a friend, yeah. and I and my whole 
biophysiology changes. Absolutely. It, it's, it's like, and it literally can just be a screen. Mm-hmm. You can't make it in person and it's uh Saturday and you just give them a call. I'm like notorious amongst my friend group of, of just randomly FaceTiming mm-hmm. them. And, and even if it's 90 seconds, yeah. it is, my brain is making a connection that yeah. it's, that is um, a micro version of what you're saying of like, mm-hmm. all right, I was just seen by a friend. Yeah. I was just accepted. Yeah. And and maybe it's one or two laughs and they need yeah. to go after uh-huh. two minutes, three minutes or, or 20 minutes. But it is, um, it like basically makes the whole day when I right. think about it. Right. One sort of like a uh, little life hack. There's a, there's a tool called Marco Polo. I love it. It's yes. so great. It's, it's like, it's a, uh, in addition Video to FaceTime. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but you get to like you get to see people you get to experience like it's it's such an honest async it's it's the most honest sort of asynchronous i wouldn't even call it a social network it's just like a way to facilitate like closeness and you know with my best friends like we we use it all the time and it's just like you know we cry on there we like support each other we talk through our keep it going as opposed to like eight seconds or 15 seconds on snapchat you can talk to them leave them a three minute message a 25 minute yeah message i've used it in business before just giving updates because it is just being able to see something you know six percent of uh uh, as they say six percent of communication is verbal and then and so it's really rich to have whether it's a few minutes on facetime or Mm -hmm. or marco polo much better you can leave a an 11 minute message updating right. someone on on right. x or y and they can see your body language and it's just it's this implicit communication mm-hmm. you don't even know that you're yeah. able to uh provide by record yeah so yeah I, I love it yeah so i wish i wish just more people talked about like kind of the being vulnerable with their desire for friendship because like when i, I think a lot of people just want friendships to be there but it's also uh kind of this bimodal like you have to be honest about that, that, you know, I want to engage in friendship and uh, be willing to invest uh, time into that. Because even in, in like the Marco Polo example, you have to put in time to even listen to those things, right? right? You have to make time to uh, kind of reply and not just, you know, like swipe past it or whatever. Yeah. Like some of my friends, like Jordan, who is, <laughs> uh, is one of my close classic friends here. Classic Jordan. Classic Jordan. He, he, whether it's text or Marco Polo leaves me hanging. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> But it is, and leaves me unseen. Um, <laughs> but I love that you mentioned friendship. It, it is, you know, to the Greeks, that was the highest form of love uh, mm-hmm. to the Greeks was was friendship over romantic love. It's, it's. I remember learning this a few years ago that it's largely a Victorian era concept of mm-hmm. romantic love. And and so, therefore, it's quite recent that we have elevated romantic love as right. the end all be all of, of your life. But every, every spouse in a, in a, happy loving marriage knows that it's actually far more about that friendship right just far richer and deeper than mm-hmm. than just the romantic side or someone like you're talking about having two really great friends mm-hmm. and saying yeah that's that's up there with uh with other forms of love and i i it's i i ever since hearing that i i it completely almost allowed myself to mm-hmm. to acknowledge the orientation that really is in my head yeah. that I just didn't have an articulation for that friendship is there's a uh, one. um do you know the Greek word for love there's actually four different words right yeah there's agape philos philo eros and forget the other one but one of them like philo is like brotherly love right. like a right. friendly love agape is like this forgiving you know, uh, self-sacrificing love. Eros right. is like, you know, it sounds like kind of what it is, but it's also sort of like this passion for, 
you know, I love like woodworking. Right. 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 Um, I forget what the other one is. Uh, yeah. Uh, but it's a, it just gives so much more richness to give it a name that I wish we had like that, that level of granularity. Amen. Yeah. It's like the Aztecs have one word for water and Eskimos have eight. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and when you're exposed to it and, and as a society, if you prioritize it enough, then like the Greeks did, then you'd, you'd start to come up with different right. words. You'd start to name different versions. But it also leads to like different behavior. Like, uh, sometimes you have outsized expectations. Like, you know, we have this one word love and usually it turns into this like life partner. And the expectation is if you read like all these like, romance novels and watch these movies is that all your sources right. of love come from that relationship, which is way too much to expect from one person, uh, especially mm-hmm, when there's yeah. so many different like aspects of fulfillment. And, you know, one of the um, uh, amazing things that my wife and I do is every year, each one of us has like a, an away trip, just alone, right? Uh-huh. Either with friends or alone or whatever, not with each other. And it's one of the most restorative times. Uh, we both come back like deeper in love with each other, oddly, right. because we get to, we get to sort of like live out aspects of um, you know, our interests and in, in other friend groups that that don't share the same, like you just have a totally different experience when um, it's like a more general kind of, you know, either like a spouse trip or like a uh, multiple couples together. It's like a totally different dynamic than, um, you know, if you go with some best friends or uh, you go on a work trip right. uh, with, you know, people who are passionate about like the problem that you're solving or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it just, just brings a lot of energy to, to give permission to, um, you know, live out like certain aspects of our lives that are important right well it's uh you know that aztecs didn't have rain or it didn't have snow and and ice and and sleet and and eskimos did in it but it's if you can you know coming up if you can recognize the different forms then you can shape one into the other mm-hmm. you know you can take that that snow and make it uh water or ice right. and 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 make it uh you know something you drink and and i think it's the same with that friendship can flow into yeah. that romantic love which flows back mm-hmm. into the friendship but that's that's awesome it, it, that is i think you're the first person to mention friendship on the podcast as a topic you think a lot about but that is that just goes to show how blind we can be to our own desires or mm-hmm. or purposefully kind of shielding the vulnerability towards something that is so innately human, that connection right. and desire mm-hmm. for friendship. And yet, well, this is a business-focused yeah, podcast yeah. or a creator-focused podcast, so we're not going to to mention such a, an aspect, but I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. Vlad, thank you so much for for the time. There's, uh, you know, when you learn these, these seemingly overnight stories, realizing they're 15 years, uh, 30 years, 30 plus years in the making, Shit, there's hundreds of years in the making with mm-hmm. with generations of 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 family members or people that came before us. It is after chatting with you, yeah. There's no uh, doubt in my mind. Webflow's destined for it's not only uh, the poster child for this whole massive movement within technology of of that no code kind of revolution, but it's uh, it's there's no doubt that uh, that is destined for even more special things down the road. It, you uh you as well individually so thanks, thanks so much for uh, for coming on you got it james thank you for having me thanks bud hey friends and listeners i hope you enjoyed today's episode 
If you want to hear more of these types of conversations, go over to your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe or leave us a review. Good or bad, we love hearing from people that that appreciate this type of conversation and want more of it. You can also follow us on Twitter at go below the line, as well as see in our Twitter bio our email address for you to shoot us a note on any suggestions of guests or topics that we should cover. We read every single one, so thank you for those that have already sent those in. That's it for us today. We will see you next time on Below the Line. Below the Line is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts.